This is the Art of Darkness podcast with Kevin Kautzman and Brad Kelly. We're a couple of very online writers interested in the dark side of what drives creative people to create against all odds. This show is about art and the people who make it, what it costs them, and what it takes to bring something unique and impactful into the world. Each episode, we excavate the life and work of an artist you might think you know. Don't worry, they're all safely dead. On every episode, we try and find out just what the hell was wrong with them and how they worked through their darkness to create something that lives on after them and continues to move culture. Find us online at artofdarkpod.com and on Twitter at Kevin Kautzman and at Brad Kelly. and creatives and such. I'm Kevin Kautzman, here with my co-conspirator, Brad Kelly. Brad, how are you? I'm doing great, Kevin. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing super. Uh, Spring has sprung here in St. Paul, Minnesota. How about out there in Detroit, Brad? Yeah, yeah, we're good. We're good. Sun's shining. Have you uh, recovered from your epic um, tour through the mind of Stanley Kubrick a couple weeks back? I am still traveling through the end of 2001, A Space Odyssey. <laughs> and I have alighted into the, the chamber where the, the star child is being born. Uh, and, I, and I remain there. It is interesting after that episode how much Kubrick stuff came up and came up on the Bird website where yeah. we could be found uh, at Art of Dark Pod. Uh, and, uh, and then you can find me, Kevin Kausman and Brad there as well. But everybody, everybody on Twitter, it just seems now every day, something about Kubrick comes up. Yeah. 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 No, it's, it's a, I was almost going to say he's divisive, but it's not really even divisive. I think, I think he meant a lot to a lot of people. His films meant a lot to a lot of different people. And, and because of the range of them, you get a lot of different reactions. There's a lot of. There's a lot of enthusiasm still for him. So that's and, that's cool. and it's a bit ubiquitous. The work yeah. is ubiquitous. Now, who are we gonna uh, be talking about today? We're gonna be talking about Franz Kafka. Franz Kafka. Yeah, and, and as we, we, mm-hmm. as we ask every we every time episode, Kevin, this I'm running I'm running the show on this one. Kevin, what do you know about Franz Kafka? I know that he wrote a short story about someone turning into a bug. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and I know that he is the inspiration for our first piece of merch. The Kafka is a hack or Kafka, Kafka was a hack, hack. was yeah. a hack uh, yeah. t-shirt, which you can get if you if you go to artofdarkpod.com. This is a limited time only shirt. This is something that I've been saying for quite some time. And, <laughs> and I want this epi- episode to be an interrogation of whether or not Kafka <laughs> was indeed a hack. Uh, my, my phrase that I created, uh, th- that phrase is meant to be a bit of a joke. Yeah. Uh, and yet the, the thesis behind it is that of course we know Kafka as well, uh, he has a word named after him, correct? Mm-hmm. Kafka-esque. Yeah. yeah we're going to uh, get into that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's when the office puts you into a catch 22 situation. There's no escape. Uh, you yeah. want to blow your brains out, but you wouldn't even know where to begin. Uh, yeah. And life has become this this perpetual nightmare. And my thesis is that he wouldn't last one day yeah. in an American strip mall. No, and, this, uh, and this, as we get into, we're going to see that no, he wasn't. He would not have been capable of it. Um, and <laughs> you know, yeah. hey, 
not everybody's cut out for it. But right. Uh, All right. Well, yeah. You know, it's funny. So you had that term Kafka was a hack. and I love that. And I was going through some old notebooks about three or four weeks ago. And I came across somewhere on some pay, old page. And I probably wrote this 10, 20 years ago, maybe. I wrote the phrase Kafka will be back for his money. I don't, know. <laughs> oh, <what? laughs> I don't know where I came up with that or, or what, but, but it was, I think it was saying kind of the same thing where it was like, uh, uh, he, he seemed to be this prescient figure, but like not quite prescient enough. <laughs> right. I, that, that, of course, is what I mean by that right. phrase. I'm being yeah. uh, provocative and, and yeah. uh, geeky about it on purpose. Of course, yeah. he, was, he was a great writer, yeah. uh, needless to say. And, but the point, of course, is that our culture has become so ruinously broken yeah. that every direction that he pointed to, we've gone well past it. Yeah, we're uh, in like a we're in like a post Kafka esque phase. We we need a new phrase. <laughs> we need a new word. Yeah, neo Kafka. Uh, but of course, he wrote he wrote the castle. Uh, the, the the famous is it a novella or a short story? The Metamorphosis. The Metamorphosis would be a novella. It's around eighty pages or so. Yeah, right. That's where Gregor Hamza turns into a bug. Mm-hmm. That's right. We are all bug men now. That's right. That's right. Mm-hmm. And that's probably that probably ends up being. I would say his most famous book specifically because it's got that great central image to it. It's so strange. It, it's so, you can visualize it and, and it's almost like a far side cartoon, you know, there's something funny, funny and weird and about it, you know? So, mm. um, and actually there is a, uh, an app, a phone app game called the metamorphosis now where you wake up as a bug. I don't know what you do exactly. <laughs> You just spend all day on Twitter. I can't probably. It's like, I do that already. I don't need a nap. I don't need a nap for this. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing that yeah. I know about him, uh, of course, is I, I believe he came from a Jewish family. Uh, and I, right. I also uh, associate him with Prague. Yes. Yeah. And that is kind of where it begins and ends. And then maybe the fact that he had some sort of horrible office job. Yeah. 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 Right. So this is, this is all true. We'll, we'll dig into all of these. Yeah. Not so- wait. Yeah, so let's let let's let's just hop right in here. So yeah, Franz Kafka, uh, born in Prague in July of 1883. Prague this time was part of the um, Austro-Hungarian Empire still, and this will be significant in that he's alive during World War One. Um, uh, he was in an Ashkenazi Jewish family. They were roughly what we would call the middle class, even though um, Jewish Jewish folk in Austro, Austro-Hungarian Empire at that time, there were certain kinds of jobs you couldn't get. Mm. Um, it, 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 I don't know how much out and out anti-Semitism there was, there probably was to some extent, but it sounded almost more like a bureaucratic, like, well, you, sorry, you can't get this, you know, document because you're a Jew. You can't be a dog catcher. <laughs> right. You can do right. X, Y, and Z. Yeah, but, mm-hmm. but you're a perfectly nice gentleman, you know, kind of like, mm-hmm. there seemed like some weirdness in that. Yeah, that's so interesting, too, because later, you know, Wittgenstein came from a Jewish, one of the wealthiest Jewish families in Vienna. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is a bit of history that I'm not quite aware of that turn from the, the more hardcore uh, anti-Semitism into a period of maybe it was a little more gentle and then of course the big yeah. eruption yeah and then it rises obviously <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. Right. so so um uh kafka's family was like i said roughly middle class mostly through the efforts of his father herman who um 
he owned a basically a, like a distributor. He would distribute it was he would distribute goods from haberdasheries to like village and more rural marketplaces. So he was oh, like, he's like a proto proto Bezos. Yeah, basically. Right, right, right. And, and um, so that was, and, and that did them, that fared them pretty well. They, mm -hmm. they worked very, it was a very hardworking family, but they were never, they were never poor. They were never quite rich either. Um, was this in the environment of Prague? Yeah, this was in, this was in Prague. In yeah. Prague. And there's, yeah, and there's the building, uh, I believe the building where he, they ran the, primarily ran the business still exists. So, the, you know, it's no longer the Kafka distributors or whatever it was. Man, Europe. Yeah. <laughs> yeah where so, all the history comes from. Yeah, yeah, for real, right. So uh, Franz was the oldest of six, of six kids. His two brothers would die in infancy before Franz was seven years old. Um, his sisters would outlive him. Um, and we're going to talk about that in probably like the last few minutes, what happened to his sisters. Um, I'm going to go about this a little bit differently than I have some of the other ones, mostly because Kafka's life was so short. So we're going to do some kind of like brush thematic brush strokes here. So born in 1883, dies in 1924 at the age of 40, leaving behind at least two classic influential novels. Um, they would only really become famous, you know, posthumously. Um, a number of short works that are still read to this day, you know, uh, reports of the Academy in the penal colony, uh, country doctor, the list goes on and on and on. Every few years, I find another five or six short pieces that I didn't know he had written. Um, and his influence significant enough that, you know, like we've said, he earned a entry in the uh, encyclopedia of literary terms just for his name. And there's something to be said for that, I think. The fact that, you know, he essentially, I don't know if you'd say he invented a genre, he invented a... a it's almost like a mood. Yeah, something. Yeah. yeah, it is kind of like a mood, right? It's like right. It fit in a spot that... Uh, it really is the highest thing that you can achieve in a funny way as an artist is this yeah. idea of something being associated with your very name. Like, like if someone says Lynchian, you right. immediately think yeah. of David Lynch and there's yeah. this style. Right. That's, that's bigger than the Nobel Prize. That's, as, that's about as good as it gets. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And I think, you know, we'll get into it a little bit. I think it's a, I think it's a very... I think some of it only works after you've had an industrial revolution. I think the Kafka-esque term can only really, it's, it's, there's a, the industrial revolution happens and then there's a kind of banality and then Kafka nails it in some way, but we'll, we'll get to that. We'll get to that more. Right. Um, there's also recently, just, just in the last couple of years, there's been a term thrown around in culture war discourse called Kafka trap. Yeah. Have you heard the use of this? I, I have not. Yeah, it's it's basically like an example would be like, um, uh, you know, in the ra mostly in sort of like race, the race aspect of the culture war. It's like if you don't say anything, you're a bad person, but uh. also if you speak, it's violence. Or you know what I mean? <laughs> right. Like, you're if you don't right. If you don't like this thing. You're a racist, but if you like it, you're culturally appropriate. Your presence makes me uncomfortable. Right. Why were you not at the meeting? Right. Yeah, exactly. It's it's that. That's so. That's uh, been by some people a Kafka trap. Hmm. Um, um, so okay. So so that's a little bit of brief, and we're gonna get we're gonna dig into this. Obviously, um, one thing I want to kind of explode a little bit in talking about this is is Kafka had a there's a stereotype for what he was like, 
that is partially true and partially not true. Um, he's, he's thought of as being, you know, so anxious that he could barely function. Oof. Um, a kind of a depressive, a dark person, um, uh, you know, waifish, uh, pale basement dweller, that kind of, that kind of guy. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and people, like an I incel. think an incel. And I think this is used with no disrespect to his talent or his, his work, but this, this is just what he was like. Mm-hmm. Right. So I want to give you a couple of quotes that I think propagate this idea about him. Mm-hmm. So one is from um, a little bit later in his life. Um, uh, in the Blue Octavo notebooks, and we'll talk about this book more later. Um, this is from Kafka himself, translated from the German. He was a, a German-speaking Jew in Prague. So not only being a Jew made you a minority in Prague, but being a German-speaking Jew made you even more. So hit people, German-speaking Jews in Prague represented something like 3 to 5% of the population of Prague. Oh, oh interesting. Yeah, so it was very small, very small group of people. Um, in fact, this is kind of interesting. They spoke not only German, they spoke something called, uh, what is it? Mauscheldeutsch. Mauscheldeutsch, sorry. <laughs> um, which, <laughs> Mauscheldeutsch? Mauscheldeutsch, which is okay. uh, Moses German, which means it's basically Yiddish, Yidd- has Yiddish terms and some Yiddish inflections in it. Right, so, but syntactically it's German, not quite Yiddish. It's just hybrid. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. So apparently, apparently that's what he and his family spoke. Hmm. So anyway, so this is, this is something that he, he wrote. And I think this reflects, I think this is part of what gets caught up in what people think of Kafka as the man. Hmm. Um, one of the first signs of the beginnings of understanding is the wish to die. This life appears unbearable, another unattainable. One is no longer ashamed of Sorry, my phone was ringing. Oh, interesting. I got to turn that somebody, off. Somebody knows that you're, uh, you're reading. Uh, yeah, they want to kill the party. I thought I, thought I had it off, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start that over. Yeah, do it, do it. That's all right. Um, one of the first signs of the beginnings of understanding is the wish to die. This life appears unbearable, another unattainable. One is no longer ashamed of wanting to die. One asks to be moved from the old cell, which one hates, to a new one, which one will only come to hate in time. In this, there is also a residue of belief that during the move, the master will chance to come along the corridor, look at the prisoner and say, this man is not to be locked up again. He is to come with me. So that's a, that's a person who's, uh, that's the person who, you know. Why am I a, I'm thinking of Radiohead now? There is a radio. I feel, I think, I, I'm not surprised that there is some influence in, in Radiohead from Kafka. For sure. I think so. Um, so I'm gonna give you one more quote from uh, that I think is is part of what has built up the Kafka legend as this dark, dark, anxious, depressive figure. Mm-hmm. Um, this is from a letter to his friend Max Broad, who we're going to get into quite a bit. <clears throat> I think we ought to read only the kinds of books that wound or stab us. If the book we're reading doesn't wake us up with a blow to the head, what are we reading for? So so that it will make us happy as you write. Good Lord, we would be happy precisely if we had no books, and the kind of books that make us happy are the kind we could write ourselves if we had to. But we need books that affect us like a disaster, that grieve us deeply, like the death of someone we loved more than ourselves, like being banished into forests far from everyone, like a suicide. A book must be the axe for the frozen sea within us. That is my belief. 
Wow, so I bet he was a fun hang. <laughs> right? Right. It sounds like this. Sounds like this. Like Kafka on Rogan. Yeah, just like the beginning oh, man, of understanding is the desire right. to end your own life. <laughs> Can you imagine? Yeah, just, just, yeah. You, you know who he reminds me of, or who reminds me of him, is Arto. That that okay. vicious, intense uh, intensity. We have to make yeah. plays. We have to make theater that assaults the audience and shakes us out of our modernity and our sleeping or our slumber and da, 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 i love that yeah, yeah. That's, no that's in, in the no. thing is it's sort of like yeah i do agree i mean i kind of agree with this one i mean i'm i kind of gave my life to literature man so of course mm-hmm. i believe this to some extent mm-hmm. you know like mm-hmm. so so it's interesting but let me give you a counterpoint that this is a description of kafka by his good friend max broad and we're going to talk about Max Broad more because he's huge in the Kafka. We wouldn't know who Franz Kafka was if it wasn't for Max Broad. So we'll get into him more. So this is from Max Broad, the biography he wrote of Kafka. I have experienced over and over again that admirers of Kafka who know him only from his books have a completely false picture of him. They think he must have made a sad, even desperate impression in company too. The opposite is the case. One felt well when one was with him. With him. The richness of his thoughts, while he, which he generally uttered in a cheerful tone, made him, to put it on the lowest level, one of the most amusing of men I have ever met. In spite of his shyness, in spite of his quietness, he talked very little. When there were a lot of people, he often didn't speak for hours on end. But when he did say something, everybody had to listen immediately because it was always something full of meat, something that hit the nail on the head. And in an intimate conversation, his tongue sometimes ran away with itself in the most astounding manner. He could be enthusiastic and carried away. There was no end to our joking and laughing. He liked a good hearty laugh and knew how to make his friends laugh too. More than that, if one were in a tight corner, one could unhesitatingly rely on his knowledge of the world, his tact, his advice, which hardly ever failed to be right. He was a wonderfully helpful friend. It was only in his own case that he was perplexed, helpless, <laughs> an impression that, owing to his self-controlled bearing, one did not get in physical contact with him except in rare, extreme cases, but one which is undoubtedly deepened all the same when one reads his diary. The fact that from his books, and above all from his diary, such a totally different, much more depressing picture may be drawn than, what it, than, than when it is corrected and supplemented by the impressions one can add from having lived with him day by day, that is one of the reasons that persuaded me to write these memoirs. So, you know, Max Broad, he loved Kafka deeply and thought he was, you know, the greatest writer of, of his lifetime, essentially. And partially wrote this book because he wanted people to know that, and also wanted to know that them to know that Kafka wasn't just this. this... It's nice to know that he could have a laugh, right? <laughs> and I think you would yeah. have to. Yeah, yeah. You well, know, you'd lose your mind. Completely. I mean, you, you can't take the entire weight of the world on your shoulders all the time, all day no. long. You just won't survive. And right. you know, maybe that partially is what happened to Kafka. But mm. um, so okay, so I just kind of wanted to get like a, uh, I wanted to get these two images of Kafka intention a little bit before we kind of dive in deeper into, you know, the bi- general biographical information. I think this is really interesting. Kevin, do you have any idea what the name Kafka means? Kafka. Because it doesn't the, sound like a Jewish name. It doesn't hit me as a Jewish name. Kaf, I mean, it would maybe, maybe I would think Kauf would be to buy possibly. Okay. That's as close as I would get because to Auf, you know, Kaufa means I purchased something. Yeah. But yeah, that's as close as I would get. So it means uh, jackdaw, which is 
a kind of crow, basically. Yeah. I completely yeah. Uh, have no idea. Yeah. So, right. So, no Fran- so Franz's name, Franz Kafka, we mm-hmm. could just call him Frank Crow, which <laughs> even adds to the gothic sort of hot topic kind of. <laughs> <laughs> Show title Kafka at Hot Topic. <laughs> but see, but see, here's the thing. It means Jackdaw in Czech. So if you introduced him, you're literally like, we don't have that association that Kafka means right, pro, right. right? But they do. They did. People that sure. met him did. So that must have just added another dimension to this like weird, dark, skinny, you know, taciturn yeah. dude. Yeah. Um, cool. Yeah. So anyway, I'd, I'd mentioned that his father, you know, uh, I think I mentioned his father was this, this sort of um, was this entrepreneur. He was also a very domineering guy, very tough very masculine, very physically brutal, like barrel chested, you know, could drink probably a case of beer kind of dudes. Um, were they observant Jews? They were not. Uh, no, no. And, and we'll get so into this secular. a little bit. Yeah, we'll get into this a little bit. Kafka would, most of what Kafka would learn about being a Jew, he would actually like learn later on in his life and his own kind of studies. They sort of didn't pay much attention to it. His father didn't seem to have time for it in, in a way. Um, so his father was this domineering, tough dude. His mother was was quiet, intelligent, compassionate, but quiet and sort of got steamrolled over by, by Kafka's father. A um, little bit of sort of background about both sides of the family. Um, his father's side was characterized by like having this kind of lust for life and uh, lust for getting one over on the world. They had the kind of the fighting spirit. Herman himself, Kafka's father, had been a soldier and would talk about it all the time, though it's not clear he actually fought in any battles. Uh, Kafka's, Kafka's, this is an anecdote, Kafka's paternal grandfather could apparently lift a sack of flour from the ground with his teeth Ah. and and once beat up an entire gang of gypsies who were hassling the patrons of a local inn. So So, so he had that on his dad's side and his mom's side. His mom's side of the family was made up of all like, like these scholars and dreamers and eccentrics and like weird recluses that lived out in the woods. And, you know, it's kind of opposite, uh, sort of opposite types from these two families. And, and Frank Crow took more after his, his mother's side. Um, so Kafka, um, he went to um, the German elementary school um, during while he was going to German elementary school, his father was basically working round the clock. His mother would also work in the business basically round the clock. So Franz's childhood, you know, his younger brothers had died. His sisters didn't come along for a little while after that. You uh, um, blew past it. He had, he had younger brothers who passed away. Yeah, his younger, his two younger brothers died when they were in infancy before, by the time Franz was seven, they had both passed away. Yeah, I think we forget so much about how common that was even 150 yeah, the, years ago more yeah, common than not yeah the mortality rate was was high yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i know like my grandparents were born and my dad's side were born in the teens and uh my grandmother i think three of her siblings passed away like in yeah. childhood death was way yeah. more common especially among the very young yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Hmm. so Franz, um, so his Franz's childhood is kind of dominated by like governesses and stuff. Like his parents aren't really around. Yeah, I've always, I've always loved that word, governess. <laughs> <too>. Governess. <laughs> well, that went I, away. 
I think for the most part, I used to think it was like a political position of some kind. <laughs> In a way, it is. Yeah, it's, it's true. It's true. Um, so, you know, so he's, he's being raised by nannies. <laughs> I, I, I could just see that meeting with the, with the governess. Now, governess, you have one job. Make sure he doesn't grow up to be a writer. Right. Yes. <laughs> a morbid writer. We can't have that. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Yes, he, must, he must swim and he must drink Czech beer. And he's going yeah. to lift whole, uh, whole bags of flour with his mouth, with his teeth. Franz is over there, like scribbling in his notebook. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, so it's funny. so yeah, no, that's actually about right. So mm. that's if I were gonna do the three-panel web comic of Franz and his dad, <laughs> that's what I would do. Mm. Um, so he went to the German elementary school again. He was in Prague. People spoke Czech, so he had a, he went to this German elementary school. His parent, his father, was very keen on them being Germans, basically. Um, uh, he, this school in particular, poor Franz, this school is known as being the most severe school in the entire city. Um, so it was the tough place to, to go to school. Um, but, you know, he did okay in school. He was generally well-behaved because he was a quiet kid. He, had, uh, he was bookish from the beginning and he had zero interest in exercise of any kind. So he didn't do very well, you know, at recess or whatever it was that they did at that time. Um, there were f occasional flashes of his later literary brilliance in his childhood. Um, one thing I thought was kind of charming was that when they were kids, Franz would write little plays for his sisters to perform on their parents' birthdays. Um, Franz didn't perform in them. He would just write these little skits and then he would sort of produce these little plays for his, mo his mother and his father. I thought that was pretty charming. Yeah, that's fun. Yeah. Um, Apparently, he got a good education by the, t the standards of the time. Even before college, there's, there's like, when it says you went to elementary school with a bunch of people and their names have blue links on Wikipedia, it's like, mm -hmm. that was probably a pretty good school, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, you know, he went to the school with uh, Emil Utitz, who became a professor of philosophy, fairly well known. Um, there was another guy who became a professor of philosopher, philosophy, excuse me, Hugo Bergman. Um, this guy, Paul Kish, who became a literary, literary historian and a well-known um, journalist at the time. So, you know, he was, he was in good company at this school in Prague, basically. Okay, so from, you know, normal public schooling, whatever, he goes to, he goes to the university, um, what's colloquial, colloquially known as the University of Prague. This is one of the oldest running universities in Europe. Um, you just smell the wood. Oh, yeah. The mahogany. Yeah. And the, the oh, all these buildings are still there. Like, you know Absolutely. what I mean? Like, it's not that, it's, you know. Yeah. There's still some ago, cities that aren't just one big strip mall. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of nice to know. I've yeah. heard Prague is incredible. I watched a, as part of uh, my preparation for this, I watched, do you know the writer Will Self? Uh, I've heard the name. Yeah. He's a British writer and I'm not a huge fan of him, but he does this thing where he walks around Prague. Um, uh, reading bits of Kafka's story, The Country Doctor, and just like giving out like biographical information. And it's a pretty humorous little video because Will Self has like no hesitation about just barking at people and like, <laughs> and, like, was this where Kafka lived? It's not, where, where is it? Oh, okay. And then they go across the street, you know. Uh -huh. <laughs> okay. So it's pretty humorous, yeah. but I'll check but, that like, out. There's a part where there's a part where they're walking down the street and they're like, "This is where this is the the Kafka's lived in this building for a while in this in this Jewish ghetto." And they turn the camera to 
like the most gorgeous building you've ever seen. It's not opulent. It's just that the architecture of the time is just, it's gorgeous, you know? Right. And that's, and that's the ghetto. That was the ghetto. That was the ghetto. Right. 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 Yeah. And it was, they were probably all sequestered into this German speaking Jewish, but it's just funny to hear that word. And then you're like, man, that building is, you have a certain idea. Right. 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 Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So, um, so Kafka goes to Kafka goes to university. He's already, you know, at least a proto writer of some kind, but he doesn't pursue English, you know, yeah, I guess I'm set English. Like it would have been English that he would pursue. <laughs> he didn't pursue <laughs> right. He didn't he pursue have. literature. Right. Yeah, right. I mean, I guess he yeah. could have. He didn't pursue yeah. literature. German letters. Yeah. 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 And it's not like they have creative writing MFAs at the no. time. No, they God. did not. No. Yeah. Right. He uh, so he um he started out in chemistry and just like literally could not hack it. So he he gave that up and he looked for the next best thing that his father would approve of, which was to go into law. And uh, the big reason that Kafka went into law was that apparently after you graduated, there would, in, in this is how it worked in, in Prague or, you know, the kingdom of Bohemia or whatever it was they were living at the time, depending on what side of World War I you're at, um, was that you would get this like year after you graduated where you basically worked part time and you were sort of like given a stipend. And he was, he re- literally was going for that year of like, chill he because he wanted to write right so uh-huh. he was setting himself up for this like he was, my, he was my, trying to hack the system yeah, he was trying yeah. to get in there yeah mm-hmm. right it's like my dad will my dad will like this because i'm going to be a lawyer mm-hmm. you know i also it'll be you know i'll be able to make some money and maybe get some financial independence but i'll have this period where i won't really have to do that much and i'll sort of be taken care of so then i'll be able to focus on my writing um but you know, a year, what can you really do in a year? Um, <laughs> do a little bit, but not that yeah. much. Um, so he, he, did, um, he did join a bunch of social groups when he was at the university, which is interesting. And this is how he made one of uh, two of actually his, his best friendships, one with um, the aforementioned Max Broad and another with this guy, Oscar Pollock, who is fascinating dude in and of his own right. Oscar Pollock, um, who's the same age as Kafka, would literally be a would be famous throughout Europe as an art historian by the time he was 31, would then volunteer and die in World War I on the Austro-Italian front. Um, and it's just fascinating. He's 31 years old and there, he's bequeathing his collection of, of art, of art history archives to this university in answer. Like it's just very. They ruled differently back then. I think about <laughs> Nietzsche. I think Nietzsche was a full professor by right. the age of 20 or something, 16 yeah. or something. Yeah. Stuff just happened. a different. Yeah. yeah. You, you, if you didn't die in childbirth, you, you basically had your career established by like 22 years you were, old. You were a grown yeah. up pretty fast back then. Now yeah. you're collecting. Funko Pops and right. living with roommates in Bushwick until you're 29. Right, exactly. Yeah, waiting yeah. for your parents to die so maybe you can buy a house in Cincinnati. Right, right, right. So, <laughs> so, um, so he's a uh, he meets a lot of these uh, he meets a lot of these folks in uh, they have some kind of like reading group social kind of reading group where readings were done nerds. Books. they were nerds they were totally <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. That's yeah great. and you would pace you would you yeah. would walk home very excitedly because you'd both just read you know whatever it was that you together read. and yeah it's and exciting. i like that it's good it's like, it's like oh the sopranos is the final episode is on set you know books were that was it yeah, there's no radio there, or the, right. the radio was was a baby medium at that yeah. time and yeah really for sure anything else you go to the I, theater you'd go to the theater yeah. you go you know you go to the the pub and you'd read mm. books 
I just yeah. love the idea of him walking into these social clubs for the first time yeah. at university and saying, have you thought about suicide today? <laughs> of course, that's not yeah. true. I just, I've got this image of him dressed up all in like 1997 Hot Topic right. swag, the big black bell-bottom yeah. uh, pants and the uh, oh, chains yeah. and everything. Yeah. Yeah, he was, he was, I don't know if you've, you've, I'm sure you've seen pictures of him. He had very sort of like elfish features almost, like very mm -hmm. sharp and like kind of pointed. Mm -hmm. And apparently I looked this up. He was six foot one. Oh. He was around 120 pounds. Oh. So he was, whoa, you know, not a, yeah. That's, no, that's wild. I'm looking at picture, pictures of him now. I'm roughly that height and 100 pounds more than that. I was going to say, well, could you imagine being so, 125 pounds? No, no, not at all. He, he had these, these piercing eyes. He did. Yeah, he, he, he was an intense, he was an intense guy. And apparently, you know, he was a, and we're going to get into this in detail because I think this part of his life's interesting. Apparently, mm. he wasn't so much a, a ladies man, but every once in a while, a woman would find him unbelievably attractive. Uh, you know what I mean? He sure. was sort of like, he, uh, he didn't hit the ball much, but when he did, it was a you know, home run, grand slam, grand slam. That's all, that's all you need. <laughs> Hey man, That's all it need. worked out okay. It worked out more or less okay. Yeah. So, um, so anyway, he gets he goes to law school. He gets the equivalent of a doctor of jurisprudence. So he's actually Doctor Kafka. Even better, he's uh, Franz Kafka Esquire, mm. um, which I have to is you know Franz Kafka esque. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of it's funny for a, a nerd like me. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> um, he's also you know he's really starting to read. Max Broad was a big influence <laughs> on him in this. Time, I right? see what you just did there. <laughs> Uh, I gotcha. Takes a minute. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so he's his friendship with this dude Max Broad is really deepening um, throughout this time, and and I keep hitting this because it, I'm getting so much information from Max Broad. One hundred percent straight. Yeah. The, this um, this relationship was there any ambivalence or no? no we're mean, just mates and it seemed like on. they were just mates, and it seemed like you know I don't know if there was like less caginess about that kind of thing, but like yeah they. They were just, I, I love my friend, you know? Epic bromance. Yeah, I think I think so. I mean, I, I kind of going went into this thinking there would be a little bit of that, but I don't, I really don't think that there was. All right. Um, it's possible, but it doesn't seem like it. Doesn't uh, come up. Yeah, it didn't come up. And uh, he, uh, so, you know, Max Broad is this, also this very literary gentleman, you know, as part of their friendship. And so they're sharing books, they're reading things. Some of, uh, some of the, the things that they read the most were, I feel like, interesting choices. So they were, they were into this guy, Kleist, who's a German writer that nobody reads anymore. Um, but they were into uh, Gustave Flaubert and Goethe. Uh no, the, yes. Madame, Madame Bovary is uh, yeah, it was, fantastic. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Um, and, and this made total sense to me. They were into uh, Gogol. Ah. Yeah. So like yeah. the nose. I mean, those are Kafka-esque stories. Was Gogol, did he write Demons or The Demons or is that someone else? No, I think well, Dostoevsky wrote a book called Demons. I think, I think I'm conflating Gogol with Dostoevsky, but what? Yeah. yeah I'm trying yeah, to remember Gogol some of it. Gogol a little more of a, a slightly more of a humorist. Okay. So he wrote a book. The one that I remember the most was a was a short story called The Nose, where mm -hmm. basically this guy walks around and his whole face is a giant nose. Uh, right. <laughs> which is okay. a kind of which is sure. a Kafka like thing to have happen. Yeah, I, I'm gonna uh, confess to being uh, the Russians are this terrible black hole of <laughs> knowledge and understanding for me. Yeah. I read a lot of Tolstoy, okay. but I never really connected all the dots with the Russians. Yeah, I'm, no, that's I'm fine. Ashamed that's to fine. Say, I, yeah. 
I read the one Gogol story, you know, and I've read a bit of, I've read a bit of Dostoevsky. Um, but uh, so, you know, that makes those all made sense. When I saw that that's what they were reading, that I kind of was nodding my head thinking that that seemed that seems right. And, you know, some of that stuff, Dostoevsky is almost contemporary with this, with mm. them, you know, mm. so it's not, it's interesting. So, um, so, you know, he graduates university, whatever. I want to dig a little bit more into his father because um, the this is there's two big influences that I haven't fully described yet that I want to talk about. Then we'll get into his writing sort somewhat in depth, um, because part of this is so after the trial and the metamorphosis is most famous stuff after. Um, the castle and the penal colony, which are maybe the most, the next and the country doctor and all these stories, America, the book he wrote called America. Um, he wrote a hundred and some odd page letter to his father. Um, oh. When he was 36 in year 1919, he gave it to his mother to try and give to his father and his mother wouldn't do it. And uh, you imagine it's a, you know, it's a hundred and some odd pages and a lot of it is, <laughs> There was a lot of wounds there. They didn't get along. Herman was totally unforgiving. You know, they had very few moments of, of peace or, or anything like fatherly love or anything like that. And, and Franz always felt like he was disappointing him. And he, he was always disappointing him. And, <laughs> right. You know, I feel like I'm always disappointing you, Father. Yeah, you, yeah, are. you are. Yeah. <laughs> you are. Oh, God. Yeah. That's Jeez. even worse. How yeah. to make a writer. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and the thing is, and you read the, this letter to his father and it's kind of sad because Franz never got to the point where he never got to the point, which might've been good for him where he said, well, you know what? I don't need to make him happy. You know, he, he was disappointed in himself for not living up to this thing that his father wanted, you know, and, and that really, that really kind of messed him up. And this letter isn't all just like hurling invectives at his dad. You weren't this, you weren't that. It was a lot of like, I'm sorry too you know so um so i'm going to give you this read you this a little bit and i think this tells us a lot about who kafka was but please father understand me correctly these were completely insignificant details yet they oppressed me because you a great man of authority could lay down rules for me and ignore them and through this i saw that the world was divided into three parts in the first lived the slave me under laws invented solely for my life, but to which, without understanding why, I could never fully adjust. And in the second part lived you, infinitely far from me, busy ruling, giving commands and being angry when they weren't followed. And in the third lived everybody else, happy and free from commands and obedience. And I was constantly in disgrace, either because I followed your commands and that was a disgrace as they were valid only for me, or I was stubborn and that was also a disgrace because I was being stubborn to oppose you. Or I wasn't able to obey because I, for example, had not your strength, your appetite, your skill to do whatever it was that for you seemed natural. And of all the things, this disgrace was the greatest. But these aren't the reflections of childhood, but the feelings, perhaps. So you can even see in that some of this like bureaucratic, like relationship with authority that isn't so much like shaking your fist at it, but like broken by it, you know. Yeah, I think about this a lot and the the what money does to people and how people who grow up having it and mm. never need to wait tables or work as a barista or mop yeah. or do short order work, how it how those those experiences define you. And there's this fine line between the dignity that is in work 
and the degradation that can come from it. And so much of it has to do with the social milieu of the people involved in the work that you're doing. If you have the right manager at McDonald's, it can be, it can be, a, it can be a good experience. You work there for six yeah. months, eight months, save a little money. You know, yeah. you move, you move, uh, move away from your hometown. You, you go to college with a little money in your pocket. If you have a bad manager or a sadistic yeah. person, yeah. Uh, it's a completely different experience. Well, and if it also if it also takes over your social life too, right? So like, I worked with my first job. I worked with a bunch of hoodlums, man. Yeah. Like I was 15 years old. Like they, if I zigged when I, if I would have zagged when I zigged, I mean, I you know, I could have been those could have been my best friends, right? You know, and then who knows? So yeah, it's yeah. I think we we associate Kafka with the office. Yes, I think because yeah. of the does that come up in a, a lot of his writing or is it, it principally? Does. Yeah, yeah, it does. It does. It it comes in. It comes up in in the trial for sure. Um, and America as well, and Metamorphosis big time, and and some of the short sto- stories as well. Um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a big thing, and we're gonna actually because he just you know it's sort of our timeline. He sort of just graduated um, college, but I do want to talk a little bit. I want to hit one note about. Um, his Jewishness, because I think this is the other big factor that influences his writing. It's, it's sort of job, dad, Jew, being a Jew. <laughs> so, well, and, and, and it sounds like not just being Jewish, but also being of this very particular niche in this extremely cosmopolitan city or this fraction of a fraction. Yeah, it's very, it's got to be very alienating. Right. right. And yeah, and that's why he, I think he and Max Broad became such good friends is because they probably, you know, in that group, they might have been the only two that were of that minority, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is, this is one thing, this is from, from, uh, it's in Max, Max Broad's biography, but it's, uh, it's written by Kafka. I think it's in a letter, or maybe it was in his journal. Ever since I can remember, I was so concerned about the problem of defending my spiritual existence that everything else was indifferent to me. Jewish schoolboys in our country are often peculiar. You can find the most improbable things among them, but my cool, hardly hidden, imperturbable, childlessly helpless, at times almost ridiculous, self-satisfied animal indifference of a child sufficient unto himself and yet coolly fantastic, I have never seen anywhere else. But all the same, it was my only protection against my nerves collapsing through fear and my sense of guilt. So, you know, that's him sort of talking about these tensions inside of him, you know. Um, and maybe that's not so much about his Jewishness, but he's, he's, he's noting that even within, he's within a minority, within a minority, and then he's a weirdo inside of that minority, you know. Um, and that's kind of where a lot of this alienation comes from. Such an interesting time, too, because we have to remember that this group, this uh, empire and this period, they don't have the same idea of the individual that we do. And novelists uh, of the period, modern novelists and modern writers were really at the vanguard of defining the individual as a character standing athwart the uh, whale-like motions of society. Right, you are right. a little shrimp in the ocean being tossed and turned by these forces that are so far beyond your control. Best evidenced by World War One and the absurdity mm-hmm. of the whole affair. Yeah. This yeah. one assass- assassination setting off this chain reaction leading to the deaths of millions and millions of the best and the best that Europe had. Oh, yeah. Uh, leading to our present age uh, quite directly. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, yeah. And- 
have to wonder, I mean, what, you know, we can read all the history we want, but I do have to wonder, you know, a place like Prague, Prague wasn't, you know, a battleground necessarily, but it wasn't far from the battlefields. And you have to wonder, what did it feel like a year before World War One? You know, was there a sense of this burbling up and like, you know, were people in the pub saying like, man, when is it gonna, you know, we had a tinderbox here. When is it going to go off? You know, I don't, it just kind of, yeah, it's yeah. hard to get a context for that because it's not history so much as it is the psyches of the people who were alive at the time. So, right. Yeah. Um, so um, we'll get into see if I want to talk about his job or I want to talk about, let's talk about his job a little bit and then we'll, we'll talk about his writing a little bit. So, so his uh, quote unquote career, <laughs> um, he didn't really do a whole lot of writing until basically he graduated from university. Um, and we'll get into some, some landmarks there, but we'll t- hit this job because this is the third piece of his. So does he graduate as a lawyer? He gets his year, he gets his special, he does, special he does, fancy boy gap year. He does get his All sort right. of gap year, but um, it doesn't, I don't think it actually ended up lasting a year for whatever reason. He, um, he went to work. He didn't have any interest in like adjudicating or practicing, actually practicing law. <laughs> He had zero interest in doing that. Right. He sounds like an, like the original neat. He wants yeah. to be in neither education, yeah. uh, employment, or training. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he couldn't handle confrontation. Like, uh, he can't, he couldn't go and make a case in front of somebody. Like, that's mm-hmm. just not, it wasn't his temperament, you know. He wasn't going to be able to do that. So, at first, he went to work for, um, and I'm not going to be able to say this, the Associazione Generale, which uh, still exists. I think it's an insurance firm now or something. Gen- oh, Association Generale, right? Yeah, something, but the uh, word is A-S-S-I-C-U-A. A R A Z I O N. Whoa. Okay. No, that's all right. That's a tough one. Sucrezione. Okay. Is it, are they? Is that Italian or French? Well, it sounds like it looks like an Italian word to me. But hmm. okay. Um, so anyway, he only works there a brief brief time because it's too much. It's the private sector. It's a little bit too demanding. So he then goes to work for the um, what's called the in English would be called the Workers Accident Insurance Institute, which is this quasi governmental body that uh, reviews insurance claims, mostly like workers comp type stuff. And then also like does quote unquote research into like what policy changes should happen to reduce factory injuries kind of thing, right? It's, it's like, it's, it's the, it's again, the banality of the industrial revolution. Right. It's, you know, there's an excitement to the industrial revolution when there's like smokestacks and like, well, man, we just invented the steam engine. This is like, <laughs> gee whiz. Yeah, exactly. We're all going to be rich. Right, right, right. And then this is just like, man, there is a lot of paperwork. Just, <laughs> just, yeah. Oof, we'll, never ca- we'll never catch up on this paperwork. Right, so right. He right. had that kind of job. Yeah. And, you know, it's basically the cube farm like you'd see in Children of Men, the beginning of Children of Men. Sure. Um, or Brazil. Orson, I think about yeah, Brazil. Brazil. Mm-hmm. Orson, Welles, Orson Welles made a film version of The Trial, and he shows an office that has um, Orson Welles. Is be- it's beautifully done. In this office, which is probably comparable to where Kafka worked, but exaggerated, there were Orson Welles hired 850 typists all sitting at chair at tables equally spaced apart all typing simultaneously (laughs) (laughs) just the sound of Moloch rising right right and then like and then the day ends the work day ends and they all just stand up and leave 
I think that everyone, we have this idea that tech and IT and all of this is, has fundamentally changed the way we, we do business. And it's like, no, it's accelerated systems that have been in place for 150 years. Oh, yeah. We just got, it just made us all more efficient. It just drilled down on a lot of them. Yeah. yeah, we, yeah they've yeah. been running spreadsheets for a long time. Oh, yeah. They were yeah. just more of a pain. Analog. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So let me give you a, so um, this was, he, he didn't, he did okay at this job. And I'll give you some details about this, but I want to give you a sense of how sort of spiritually damaging it was for a guy oh, like Tom. No. Was there any romance uh, in his life at this point or was it um, just all work? He, he did, um, he did meet a woman, Felice Bauer around this time, a little bit later. Okay. Um, all right. Some time, but we'll, just we tracking that. that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. We will right. definitely get into that. Um, this is something that uh, this is Max Broad talking about Kafka's experience at work, the diary. And he's talking about Kafka's diary because Kafka was an obsessive diarist. The diary says such shattering things in the subject of office work, preventing him from writing, that there's nothing more one can say in the subject. But there is one utterance of his which must be understood, coming as it does from one who is otherwise so modest that he had to force a piece of writing for his office out of himself as if he were tearing a piece of flesh out of his own body and who then in quote unquote great fear sets forth that everything in me, and this is Kafka talking now, that everything in me is ready for creative work and such work would be a heaven sent solution of my problems and a real coming to life. While here in the office, for the sake of such a miserable bit of an official document, I must rob a body which is capable of such happiness of a piece of its flesh. So that's a rough day at work. <laughs> Whoa, <laughs> you know, so he, he struggled. He really did struggle with like, he, he, apparently he did a good job. Um, people liked him. Um, and, uh, you know, there's actually an interesting thing in this Max Broad bi biography. Max Broad includes a little bit of a report that Kafka wrote for work. And it's, it's actually kind of this nicely written technical document. It's like, I mean, it's not fun. I'm not going to bore you guys with it, but you could see that Kafka was, he, he made an actual effort. He didn't just sort of slink off work entirely. Um, uh, there's actually, I'm going to give you one more anecdote about work because it's, it's, I found it interesting because Max Broad went back after Kafka's death, trying to write this biography. He went back to where Kafka worked to try and get some, um, you know, just to get some general, like, what was he like here? What were his coworkers like? Just the kind of stuff you would do if you were writing a person's biography. Um, Let's see, where is it? Um, da, 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 da. He's, oh, he's popping have... along with it. Do you remember the guy who would always talk about suicide on yeah, the break right, right. by the water cooler? <laughs> right. How would you do it? That reminds me of Doug Stanhope. Stanhope has that challenge where the, the game is to invent the, the best suicide possible. Oh, right, 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 right. <laughs> <laughs> they come up with this crazy stuff about like roller coasters and a guillotine at the end of the roller coaster and your head pops off and you catch it in your own hands. And... <laughs> There's room for this stuff. You got to laugh about this oh, stuff. Yeah. You oh, yeah. Go crazy. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So this is, uh, this is, this is Max Broad goes back to Franz's old place of work after Kafka is dead and is asking about him, right? Franz Kafka, so the gentleman told me, was popular with everyone. He hadn't a single enemy. His devotion to duty was exemplary. His work was very, very highly thought of. The gentleman emphasized that Franz Kafka attacked every question from the opposite end of that from which everyone else generally did. A very, a very opposite rem remark on the part of the gentleman who, be it noted, did not know that Kafka had since become world famous. 
Another thing he emphasized was a certain naivete in Kafka's makeup. He was our office baby. He told me a story that is very characteristic of Kafka. One day he came into my office just as I was eating a slice of bread and butter. How can you swallow that fat? Kafka said. A lemon is the best food. So he's just a weird dude, right? Just a strange... <laughs> right. This this sort of wayfish, tall, dark-eyed yeah. Yeah. dude with the last name that's like Crow. Right. Office, mm. But he's also the office baby. And then I love that they go back. He go, Max Broad goes back to talk to his coworkers. And, and, and at this time, this is like the trial has been has been published, you know, like Kafka is a name is a name in literary circles at this point, even though he's dead. And they have no idea. They just don't right, of course. in touch with that. Yeah. It's, How'd the Vikings do this weekend? Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. I heard you. I heard you had a play on in London. Right. right, right. What happened there? Right. <laughs> oh, nice. What yeah. do you think about the Packers this yeah. year? Yeah. Did you okay. eat any fish and chips over there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they sure do talk funny. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Oh, that's nice. You guys, I see. I see you've been published. Very nice. That's cool. Yeah, I, I, I got an A in English in eighth grade. (laughs) That's what I get. That's what I get. Not that I'm Kafka, but whenever I tell anybody about writing, they'll always tell me about something they wrote in like seventh grade. Yeah, they're like, yeah, that's cool. Everybody has a novel they want to write. Yeah, yeah. Um, all right, so so let's talk a little bit about his writing. So now I'm going to do this writing brush stroke, and because it's we're already an hour in. Um, um, okay, so uh, let's see. So the big, the first thing that really comes out that he wrote. There's some earlier stuff that is more or less lost, but if you look at collections of stories, because he wrote a lot of short stories, the first thing that people generally include is his story uh, description of a description of a struggle, which I think is a great title. Um, and uh, this is the piece that Max Broad read and was like, oh, my God, you're a genius. And let's be best friends for the rest of our lives. Um, and there's also a statue in Prague uh, of Kafka that is inspired by the story. It's actually Kafka. You may have seen it. Kafka sitting on a giant empty suit, mm-hmm. like riding on the shoulders of this giant empty suit. This, that comes from Description of a Struggle. Aha, looking at um, it now. Yeah. 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 So it's sure. kind of a funny little, funny little thing. Um, so, uh, you know, mostly what he's writing comes after he gets his, his uh, doctorate and he is, uh, I guess, I don't know if it's a doctorate, if you're a lawyer, I don't know how that works, but I think him, it's a Jewish, Jewish doctorate yeah. that you don't have, you can't call yourself, I think there's a debate, but I don't think yeah. you call yourself a doctor. Yeah. That's Some people do sure. did refer to him as doctor. I guess. Is that right? So I don't know. Well, the, in Europe, they do degrees differently too. Sure. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, um, that story description of a, a struggle would be um, published in a journal called Hyperion. Um, in 1912, he wrote, uh, so 1912, he's 20, what is that, 29. He writes most of a book that would later be called America with a K. Um, he titled it in German, The Man Who, who Disappeared. Um, and then in 1913, he writes Metamorphosis, um, which would become, which would be published two years later in 1915. Um, most people don't know about America. It's hilarious. It's funny and it's smart and it's weird. It's about this boy who goes to, um, he's seduced by a chambermaid or maybe it was a governess. I'm not sure. And he has to leave, he has to leave the country and he goes to America. And um, Kafka had never been to America and this is pre-internet. So Kafka's just making up what America is based on like, you know, 
pub conversations and, you know, an uncle went there or something, you know, a postcard came from, you know, whatever. So there's hilarious things like um, the Statue of Liberty has a, is holding a sword which you know, is a minor detail. It'd be more, more appropriate actually. Probably. Yeah. yeah. The, um, the, uh, the, the traffic is so bad that it's literally bumper to bumper. Like everybody pushes, tries to push each other. Um, <laughs> they, Have you been to LA? Yeah, it's kind of like that. Now the, the, my favorite like off detail is the main characters. I think it's his uncle is a Senator. So he's like going and he's going to stay with his uncle, but Kafka didn't know what a Senator was. So, <laughs> a senator, so the uncle is just like a vaguely rich philanthropist who lives out in some like, like semi haunted estate. Out trying to find the lie. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. And they eat hamburgers every day, right. three yeah. times a day. Yeah. Everyone's yeah, so, rich. Right, 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 right. So it's, it's pretty funny. I think it's actually worth a read and it's, do it's, you think that he was being loud. naive and kind of dopey on purpose? Was he fantasizing about it or was he just writing juvenilia? I think, I mean, you know, he's 29, so it's not quite juvenilia anymore. I think it was a mix of, I think he knew that he didn't know and was thinking of it as like this dreamland where it's sort of that's like. That's appropriate because that's yeah, what it was. That's to what it most, was. By far, most people in Europe. Right, right. Uh, yeah. And it still is to many people in Europe. A lot right. of people in Europe never get over here. And if they do, they only yeah. go to New York for uh, a long right. weekend shopping. Then they come right. back. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I've seen America, right? Okay. Right, right, right. So, yeah, so I think it was, I think it was knowing he didn't really know. And he, it, was, it was a fictional land to him. And he was treating it as such. And it's so humor, funny because it's a, it's a fictional land to us, too. Yeah, That's another right, interesting right. thing. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, and the humor is intentional, mostly. Like, because it, it's a bit of a comedy of errors. You know, it's like a fish out of water. He gets there. He doesn't know how to do anything. You know, it's kind of one of those. Mm. And it's, it's, pretty, it's pretty humorous. He gets himself into some, some tricky situations. Um, so after that, uh, 1913, he writes the Metamorphosis. It gets it gets published in 1915. Um, this is where he gets the highest level of literary prestige he ever would in his life. So there is something called the Fontaine Prize. Um, it's been given out intermittently and run by different organizations. But um, in 1915, it was awarded to this guy Carl Sternheim, who ran the journal that published Metamorphosis. Sternheim liked Metamorphosis so much that he gave the prize and the prize money to Kafka. So nobody knew uh, who Kafka so was. So he won, he won a prize that somebody else won. He won the money. Yeah. Wait, so is he also up for the award? And this guy was like, I don't need this. This is a better writer. Here yeah, he is. my understanding uh, was that, yeah, that Sternheim wanted Kafka to get more attention and loved his work and was like, no, this is who should have it, basically. Okay. Um, and gave him the prize money. So... So, I mean, that was the closest he got to any kind of literary prestige. Um, um, but we'll see in a little bit that his writing did hook him up a couple of other times. Um, sometime around set 1917, um, so 34-ish, he finishes the trial. No one would basically ever read the trial except for maybe Max Broad until after he died. And it's primarily short stories. And finally, his last novel, The Castle, which famously ends mid-sentence. Um, uh, right before he dies, so 1924, he's dead. Right before he dies, um, the, he sends four short stories um, titled The Hunger Artist. Um, the, the collection is called The Hunger Artist, which, which were basically in the process of being published as he died. Um, so that's kind of his whole literary um, oeuvre. 
um, lots and lots and lots and lots of short stories and, you know, these, these handful of longer works. Um, let's talk about the metamorphosis a little bit. You kind of brought it up. Um, it's, it, in my opinion, has maybe the greatest opening sentence in literature. <laughs> it's in the running anyway. Um, yeah. As Gregor Samsa awoke one morning from uneasy dreams, he found himself transformed in his bed into an enormous insect. Right. And, and, and it just kind of goes on from there. It, he, what he a, is, what a beginning. Right. I right. love it. Yeah. And see in literary workshops, we were always told don't start the story waking up in bed. It's, it's, it's hack. That's oh, hack. is it? Yeah. Is it hack because of this? Well, that's a good point. Maybe it is because the trial also starts with waking up in bed. And I think Kafka was, was, was cognizant that that was the time to make these sharp distinctions, like structurally work. You can wake yeah. up in a different world sort of thing. Interesting. Um, metamorphosis is, 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 pretty, is pretty great. I, I listened to a LibriVox recording recently um, that was really well done. And the thing right. that I had forgotten I mean, about on, it. Go on. What? No, 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 go on. Okay, so the thing that I had forgotten about it, I, you know, I remember the bug stuff and there's, there's, he's, he gets alienated from his family and his father is angry. What I had forgotten was how intense it was about his job that literally, because he's a bug, he doesn't get out of bed and go to work. And then his manager shows up at his house. <laughs> it's, <laughs> like, it's like at the door, it's like, Gregor, what is wrong with you? <laughs> and, and remind me, do they, they don't see him as a bug, but he knows he's no, a they, bug. No, they see him well, as a bug, do. but, but they're, so they're, long since I've read it. they're repulsed by it, but they're also not like, A, they know it's him somehow. Like, you know, why? As you do. Right. And B, they don't really do anything. They're just like, well, all right, well, shut the door. And then his sister takes care of him. This is this has become part of the vernacular online. Everyone talks about bug men and being yeah. a bug man and, and this yeah. and that. And this is directly related to this story. Yeah. I looked yeah. up a German um, translate or the, the German original. And there's another translation of this uh, opening sentence. Do you mind if I read? Oh, yeah, go a for different it. translation. I think yeah. this might be more literal. Yeah. Um, I'm not trying to top your original one. I just oh, think no. this is interesting. Yeah. One morning as Gregor Samsa was waking up from anxious dreams, he discovered that in bed he had been changed into a monstrous verminous bug. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so the word that they actually used and why bug is actually probably better than insect, hmm. the word that um, Kafka actually used, its proper translation would be vermin unworthy of sacrifice. Yeah, it's unga zifa. Yeah, I yeah. think that's the word. Mm. And then there are some physical descriptions throughout the story that indicate that it is kind of some sort of bug-like thing. You know, mm. it has a carapace and it's got like multiple legs and all of that. Vermin. Yeah. Vermin. Yeah. yeah. But the the the, the by, on this this most more recent read through or listening in this case, I loved this works. Like he, the thing is, Samsa was financing his entire family, his parents and his sisters. And so him losing, he losing his job, it, this caused all kinds of problems that um, he has the boss. entire weight of the world on him. Yeah. And he can't do many, anything. Many people do many. Mm -hmm. And historically, many men have women yeah. too in different ways. But many men have had to go into these hellish jobs, never mind the military and having to mm -hmm. go and fight and die yeah. uh, with a gun to your head. If right, you don't do right. this, your family starves. Right, Enjoy. Right. Yeah. And then he just wakes up. And he's this repulsive thing that can't do anything. Right. But he can watch his family disintegrate and fall apart. 
you know, around him. Mm-hmm. Um, but the job that when his manager showed up, I'm, listen, I'm driving, I'm driving and listening to this and his manager came to his house. I just let out like a pained laugh, just like, <laughs> Oh my, this poor guy, not only is he a bug, he's trying to figure it out. His boss shows up. Um, but, but let me give you one quote. I'll just give you yeah. one quote from the yeah. story and then we'll talk about the trial. Perfect. Um, what a fate to be condemned to work for a firm where the slightest negligence at once gave rise to the gravest suspicion were all the employees nothing but a bunch of scoundrels? Was there not among them one single loyal, devoted man who, had he wasted only an hour or so of the firm's time in the morning, was so tormented by conscience as to be driven out of his mind and actually incapable of leaving his bed? So there's just this, this, this like the crushing anxiety of work, you know. Right, and this is this is before they have spyware on computers right. and they're tracking your eye motion right. while you're doing your work, and right. Right. they want right. you to go work work on the Facebook campus. No, you don't have to leave. You never have to leave. There's we'll hammock, feed you, know? you. and yeah. yeah, we even have an arcade and there's a rooftop garden. Why would you ever want to go live among the peasants? You right. made it. Right. You right. made it. Uh, yeah. 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 See, yeah, Kafka, they, if you'd have given him a million dollars a year, he would have felt exactly the same about this, this job that he I had. think, I think so. You know? Like, yeah. Yeah. It wouldn't have hmm. changed. It wouldn't have changed him. You know what um, I'm reminded of too is uh, the British, the original version of The Office. Mm-hmm. You could define as Kafka-esque. Oh yeah. I think so. Yeah. The American version doesn't quite work that way, but right. yeah. It's a little yeah. more gentle. In the yeah. End. yeah. 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 So, so his next big, the next big sort of tentpole Kafka story, if you can call it that, is the trial, um, which uh, is is famous and is probably maybe the most Kafka esque. Maybe this is where we get the most of our of our ter- that term from. Um, basically, in short, a person who is very very much like Franz Kafka in terms of work and background wakes up and is arrested, and basically as he's getting out of bed, and no one ever tells him what he's being charged with. And it sort of just progresses from there. He makes us, he runs himself through a series of bureaucratic hoops trying to figure out what he's being charged with and who he has to talk to about what and what, how he has to be ready for the trial and the proceedings and, and never really gets a straight answer out of anybody about anything. Um, so it feels a little bit like going to, you know, the DMV when you've, you've, uh, you, you took all the documents they told you to on the website and then you get there and they're like, well, where's uh, this thing? And I go, well, it didn't say I needed to take it. Well, you have to, you have to say it. But I waited here for three hours. Well, I don't care that you waited here for three hours. You got to go over to the thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, that's the, that's, and, and it's not so much in, in you know, it's exaggerated or, or it's amplified in this, you know, he's under these legal proceedings and he eventually, you know, spoiler alert, they eventually execute poor Joseph K. Um, but, you know, there's, there's something just inherent in the absurdity and the irony and the, and the nonsensicalness of living in a bureaucratic system. Just nothing really makes sense. Nothing really works the way that it's supposed to. Everything is just such like a, it's not just that it's an irritation. It's everything's like a little bit dehumanizing, you know, it's like you become a number. You, yeah. So, so. Right. And then you can't really take anything at face value. There's so many, you know, so much politics. I have to rewind just slightly. I was going to say this uh, when we were talking about the metamorphosis and remembering my public high school in North Dakota, uh, where some of the best classes that I had were in in English and uh, all of this. 
and being exposed to the metamorphosis at, at age 14, 13 <laughs> in North Dakota. And the, the teacher, I think, I don't recall this coming from one of the better teachers uh, that we had. There were some very inspired teachers uh, who really influenced me personally, but there were some that were just clearly as baffled as, as, as you were. Yeah. Right. <laughs> like, what are we doing? We're reading this, this uh, early 20th century Jewish Czech German yeah. uh, writer from central Europe. There's no context. Right. Right. We don't know. Oh, this was originally written in German. That never comes up. Yeah. We're just handed a translation right. and this guy becomes a bug. Right. <laughs> and everybody, all the seeds are just kind of looking at each other like, what? what are we doing? What does this represent? I don't know. I'm 14. <laughs> Never worked in an office. The teacher's like, this is my life with you rotten, you know, white trash kids right. in the Dakotas. The teacher relates. Right, right. right. The, well, the teacher feels like a bug. Right. Yeah. The teacher's yeah. got a little whiskey in a, in a mug. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think some of it got through. Some of it got oh, through sure. into my brain. Well, some yeah, of it probably somewhere. did get through to you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you're literary minded, man. Right, right, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. God, I um, wish I wasn't. Yeah, sometimes. Let me give you just one quote from the trial. I tried to pick like one good quote that I think is not only representative of the book, but is, is, is Kafka-esque. Because I feel like I want a, a listener at the end of this to feel like they somewhat understand what that term means. Um, or understand at least one of many definitions. So this is from the trial. One must lie low, no matter how much it went against the grain, and try to understand that this great organization remained, so to speak, in a state of delicate balance, and that if someone took it upon himself to alter the dispositions of things around him, he ran the risk of losing his footing and falling to destruction, while the organization would simply right itself by some compensating reaction in another part of its machinery since everything interlocked and remained unchanged unless indeed, which is very probable, it became still more rigid, more vigilant, severer, and more ruthless. Which is just like, that's like a long way of saying like, you can't do anything about this. Like will never change this. Yeah, and yeah. even the people in charge can never change yeah, this. This is a beast that it's, is it's so much bigger us. than it. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's an yeah. algorithm. Well, now we're living in the age of algorithm, right? So like the algorithm, nobody even knows what the algorithm's doing. Like nobody at YouTube knows what the algorithm does. It's, they put information into it and it spits other information out. They don't know. Like they could, they can make some changes, but it's a black box. The whole economy is a black box, basically. <laughs> Kafka was a hack. <laughs> yeah, he didn't realize. He had no idea how deep this was going to go yeah, eventually. Yeah, right. Um, so his next big book, and then we're going to get into personal stuff and, 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 and start to maybe wind down. We're not going to go Kubrick long, but um, next big book is... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> That's a new term for the podcast. Sorry, yeah, I didn't Kubrick, do Kubrick long. <laughs> yeah, right. Oof. It was great, and apparently people really like it. So, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, go back and listen fun. to the Kubrick episode. Yeah, It was good stuff. Um, so his next thing was the castle. He never quite finished the castle. Again, Ed's mid, Ed's, Ed's mid sentence. Um, this is a story about this guy who gets called to this village to be a land surveyor, but he's not a land surveyor. It's very confusing. The castle is apparently called for him. The castle is this bureaucratic entity just outside the village that runs the village. Um, and they, it has this very strange relationship with, um, with the village. 
Um, nobody in the village can talk to anybody in the castle. And so this guy ends up there and he's like, he's got this piece of paper that's called him there to work, but nobody agrees with him that he was supposed to be called. So it's this very, it's this, again, this kind of DMV thing. Like, well, I was told to come here with this. And you know, you you sh- you came here with that. You shouldn't, you know. And it becomes this, and nobody knows what to do, where to go, how to get the question answered. You know, um, he's sort of treated almost like a criminal, even though he was asked to be there. It's one of those kinds of things. Um, um, and let me just give you. This is a little bit of a longer quote, but I'll give you this, and we'll we'll move on. <clears throat> so this is uh, the chairman of of uh, a chairman that works apparently works in the castle or works for the castle. Quite simple, said the chairman. You haven't really come into contact with our authorities. All those contacts are merely apparent. But in your case, because of your ignorance of the situation here, you think they're real. As for the telephone, look, in my own house, though I certainly deal often with the authorities, there's no telephone. At inns and in places like that, it may serve a useful purpose along the lines of, say, an automated phonograph. But that's all. Have you ever telephoned here? You have? Well, then perhaps you can understand me. At the castle, the telephone seems to work extremely well. I've been told the telephones up there are in constant use, which of course greatly speeds up the work. Here on our local telephones, we hear that constant telephoning as a murmuring and singing. You must have heard it too. Well, this murmuring and singing is the only true and reliable thing that the local telephones convey to us. Everything else is deception. There is no separate telephone connection to the castle and no switchboard to forward our calls. When anyone here calls the castle, all the telephones in the lowest level departments ring or all would ring if the ringing mechanism on nearly all of them were not, and I know this for certain, disconnected. Now and then though, an overtired official needs some diversion, especially late in the evening or at night, and turns on the ringing mechanism. Then we get an answer, though an answer that's no more than a joke. That's quite certainly understandable. For who can claim to have the right, simply because of some petty personal concerns, to ring during the most important work, conducted as always at a furious pace? Nor can I understand how even a stranger can believe that if he calls Sordini, for instance, or really, it really is Sordini who answers. Quite the contrary, it's probably a lowly filing clerk from an entirely different department. But it can happen, if only at the most auspicious moment, that someone telephones the lowly filing clerk and Sordini himself answers. Then, of course, it's best to run from the telephone before hearing a sound. <laughs> so that was a bit of a long one, but I kind of feel like it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's the, you, the system has become so overwrought and convoluted and, and human nature has seeped in to the extent that it doesn't work at all anymore. Like, no one has any idea what's going on. No one knows how to talk to anybody and actually accomplish anything. And nobody's yeah. even interested in trying to at a certain point. It's sort of, that's just the way it is. And the machine just kind of keeps tumbling along. Well, and, and the telephone would have been relatively new. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and, and so he's wrestling with this technology that there's sure. probably a lot of anxiety about. This yeah. would have been, it would have been a big deal to be a switchboard operator at the time. That would have been yeah. a prestigious job. Oh, it uh, would be like, it would be like be being, being like a like web developer, a, uh, yeah. yeah, something. Yeah. yeah, I you know, Python and you, or you build apps or something. Or, right, right. You know, maybe not, you don't own the company, but you're right there. I think I remember that Carnegie um, was a, uh, I think he, was a telegraph operator, which was a very okay. big deal. And it put him right at the nexus of communication. Sure. So this is very interesting. He's wrestling with this technology. Yeah. 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 And he's already seeing the way in which it's going to become alienating, right? Like he already sees the, the way in which it's like, 
okay, the idea between this phone is that you can pick it up and you can talk to this person that you need to talk to. But in, in fact, what it's going to actually do is going to generate another level of bureaucracy where in which the the purported efficiency is going to be convoluted by both human nature and the general tendency for systems to degrade. So like you come up with this, this will be great. You can talk to you and it will, it will be like that for one minute. And then from then on, it will become convoluted and complicated and degraded. And you know, that guy will always ignore his phone when this kind of thing's coming. So you'll try to get a hold of him another way. And you know, it's, it's, I don't know. I feel like he saw that a lot of that, a lot of that coming, or maybe it was, was happening then too. Um, so, you know, that's the big, that's sort of the hits of his writing. Um, I want to get into his personal life, but I did have one other interesting note when we were sort of t talking about these interpretations. Um, this was important for me trying to dig into because I'm not Jewish. I don't know much about that world. I don't know what it means to be a Jew really. Um, so I was interested in what, influence that had on his writing. And um, I came across this talk by this guy, um, Rabbi Dr. Henry Abramson. It's kind of a recent talk. And uh, it was pretty interesting. So this guy does these like series on different Jewish writers, right? And um, he's talking about, um, have you heard of uh, Midrash? Midrash? Yeah, I've heard of Midrash. I don't know what it is. Yeah, uh, I lived a, in New York for seven years, so you right. come across a lot of Jewish right. terms if you're a hayseed from sure. flyover. You're suddenly exposed to all of this. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So, so Midrash is um, it, it's it's a couple of things that are all sort of interrelated. It's a, a form of biblical exegesis, um, mm -hmm. but then it's also the sort of genre of literature generated by this, mostly like in, in like like twelve hundred the year 1200 AD and before. Um, so sort of ancient biblical exegesis, but it's also the process of this exegesis, which has a certain kind of style, which is like word, like, you know, you're digging into the actual word and like, what are all the meanings of this word? Okay, every variation of this, how does that change the sentence? And Hebrew is very open, open to this as well, right? Because there's no spaces between the letters, you know, then the letters are numbers, you know, there's these complicated. Yeah, right. There's right? this, uh, yeah, indeed. So, so you can go deep, you know, if you're willing to like really dig and think through all the variations, you can go very deep. Abramson says that Kafka was deeply influenced by Midrashic literature. And I think there's some truth to that because if you read some of these Midrash, um, writings they're very much like a western koan i don't know if you're familiar with koans from like mm -hmm. from zen you know they're these kind of open-ended stories that they're not so much to tell you something but they're to put you in a frame of mind to think about a thing in a certain way um i think there's some truth to that i think kafka was somewhat to some degree writing like you know these sort of neo neo midrash of the industrial age sort of thing. And so I just think that was kind of interesting. He was also really interested in um, Yiddish theater because, um, you know, he'd always thought of Yiddish as this kind of, Yiddish was like slang, basically. Um, you know, it wasn't written down for a very long time. And so he came across Yiddish theater and he thought it was kind of important and powerful that people were sort of like taking on this language and they were going to try to do something, you know, do something new and interesting with it. Yeah. So, yeah. And there's a long history of uh, Jewish theater and, and mm -hmm. Jewish people in the theater and certainly in America and entertainment and all that. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right 
Yeah, yeah. And and I think this this really opened up another way of that I like thinking about Kafka. You talk about Kafka's work. There's a there's a they're written in a somewhat folkloric style, in my opinion. Like Yeah, yeah, the the, the one where he becomes a bug, the yeah. metamorphosis. Yeah, that's like uh, almost like a uh, a Grimm's brother kind of right. a setup. Yeah. Very high concept kind of a thing. Right. It's a right. fantasia. But, yeah, yeah, no, and and I've always felt that that was the case, but this midrashic thing makes me think, and the the, the thing where Kafka isn't quite writing like a folk tale or quite writing a fairy tale is the allegorical relationships are more complicated. Like, so being waking up as a bug is like being you know being having people being repulsed by you for no reason. That's maybe is like being a Jew in this context, or that's like having a job in the industrial era. That's like it 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 relates to multiple 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 things rather than you know some easy translation. Mm -hmm. So so yeah, I don't know. I just thought that was interesting. This whole midrashic thing. Um, all right, so. <clears throat> We'll talk about his personal relationships. This is going to be one of our last kind of strokes here. Um, he, one of the, you know, one of the, uh, well, we'll talk about Max Broad for a second again, just because he becomes, he's so important throughout. He and Max Broad are, are good friends. Max Broad is actually a way more successful writer in his own life than Kafka ever was. <laughs> none of his stuff is translated into English or almost none of his stuff is translated into English. Nobody reads it anymore. It's all kind of fallen by the wayside. Um, but they did together have a bit of a, like a freewheeling period. Once they were both out of college and they were both in the workforce, they would like hang out and they would go to the pub and they would, you know, they would meet on the street after work and like walk home and, and talk, you know, they would hang out basically every day. Um, in fact, um, when they got a little bit of money together and it's so funny because Kafka's always like, I have no time to write. And yet he has, he literally works like a 32 hour week and he's constantly going on vacation. So, so there's like this, there's this like, he's in Paris for three weeks and he's like, I have no time to write. And I, I just, I kind of didn't sympathize with him all that much. Um, but, but they go on these cool trips. There's a little bit of a free willing period sort of in Kafka's mid, mid twenties. Um, let's see. I, I kind of wrote down some of the places they went. Um, they went to Riva, they went to Vienna, they went to um, Paris for a little while, they went to everywhere you can go, basically, in what is now called the Czech Republic. Um, uh, where else did they go? They went to a few places in Germany, in Berlin. Um, they did. Yeah, at this point, there was a ro robust train system all around yep. Europe. You were able yeah, to get yeah. around and yeah, pretty could, readily... They could bounce around. In fact, they did so much traveling and they liked it so much that they jokingly, Kafka and Broad talked about writing a series of on the cheap travel books, which would just be like a guide to like how to live in Paris on, you know, it would be like $20 a day now or whatever, right? Like how do you, you know, yeah. how do you get by and where's the cheap place to eat and the cheap place to stay okay. and right. yeah. Interesting. kind of cool. Yeah. yeah. Um, and Kafka would end up traveling a bit on his own when he got sick. He would, uh, especially when he got sick, he was trying to find a sanitarium that he might be able to like tolerate somewhat. So there was a bit of that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about relationships because when I was a little Kafka fanatic, fanatic as a teenager, I basically thought that he was like a virgin, like an incel, you know, um, that's how he struck me. And 
it's kind of odd looking and never got married and died young and it's the olden times. So I kind of figured, you know, whatever. He never, 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 maybe never met a lady he liked or vice versa. This is not true. <laughs> um, so he, he had a basically um, three major romantic relationships in his life. Okay, so um, let me give you a little bit of a, a, a thing, a, sort of a, a preamble before we get into relationship stuff. Um, this is something that Kafka wrote in his letter to his father about marriage. To get married, to found a family, to accept all the children that arrive, to maintain them in this uncertain world, and even to lead them a little on their way is, in my opinion, the utmost that a man can ever succeed in doing. That so many people succeed with apparent ease in doing it is no proof to the contrary because in the first place, not many really succeed. And secondly, these not many don't generally do it, but it just happens to them. This is not that utmost that I mean, it is true, but it is nevertheless a very good thing and worthy of all respect. Right, so this was, a, he wanted a family, he wanted kids. He, he could, he struggled to bring himself to doing it just like everything, right? He was timid and anxious and he felt like he was disappointing people and he was always trying to do the right thing. And if you're- Does it, does it help when you weigh less than the woman? <laughs> 120 <laughs> pounds, yeah, she's yeah, throwing you around. Yeah, yeah, you probably right. weren't a, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, yeah. Yeah, Kafka skipped leg day. Right, he did, he did not, he was not known for his squats. Though apparently later he became like a decent swimmer and rower, oh, according okay. to Okay, okay, I respect uh, that. Learned how to ride a horse, actually. Uh, I respect these things. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that thing that he said was based. He, yeah. he gets it. He, he, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah have a right. family, raise yeah, kids, totally, man. He's totally right. So, mm -hmm. so, um, um, but he had this, this is where you see this tension of like, he was always, and brought, Max Broad talks about this, that Kafka was, of all the people that Max Broad knew, he said that Kafka was the person who was most obsessed with doing the right thing. Hmm. And there's something when you're obsessed with doing the right thing and you're anxious that Ooh. you end up not doing anything. Paralyzed because you don't know what to do right. and you're judging yourself so much. I think right. of his brain as like an Escher. Right, we're just right, racing right. around and landing on like, the same stairwell and going back yeah. up again. And no, yeah, here's and my like, boss, and I'm a bug. And yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it's like you think that you're like, all right, I got to think of the exact right thing to do. And you're taking all this data and like, what's the exact right? By the time you've even processed that, some new information's come in. Like, there's never the perfect right thing to do. You just got to do stuff sometimes. You know, yeah. you got to kind of just go on your gut. And Kafka right. wasn't really capable of doing that. It was constant second guessing. Constant Say what little, you want about America and Americans. We are painfully impulsive at times we <laughs> just true. do it we just charge ahead let's go <laughs> let's true. do it that's yeah. true sometimes you have to or literally nothing's going to happen so it's, right. it's like yeah so um the so let's talk about these these women that he met so the first the first major one is this woman felice bauer um felice bauer was distant distant distantly related to max broad um through she was like mary or she was cousins to someone through marriage or something um and uh they met uh, Felice and Kafka met in August of 1912 and then began a relentless writing campaign because that's how Kafka carried out his relationships. 90% of it was just feverishly writing letters to them. Uh, <laughs> you know, so it's, it's, it, and you read some of these letters and some of them were published in a book called Letters to Felice. Um, they're just all of Kafka's nervousness and misgivings and frustrations and promises and we should go do this and we should go do that and you know 
that sort of thing. They didn't meet again in person until 1913 around Easter, where he um, and then he proposed marriage at the end of July that year. So he basically spent time, physical time with her twice, um, and then proposed to marry. They had some kind of engagement events the following year with his parents there. Um, and uh, But they, this engagement was broken off a few weeks later. Felice later told Broad that, uh, Max Broad, that she wanted nothing to do with Kafka after this. It's not clear why. It seemed like he wasn't willing to, it was this sort of paralysis kind of thing. He couldn't, he couldn't figure out how to get himself into the emotional space to do the things that would need to be done to be married. Mm. So um, they would continue to communicate though. So this wasn't the end, the end. Um, in uh, 1916, they actually spent 10 days together. So this is assume that this time probably was a little more physical, a little more romantic. Um, may, may I ask, uh, you, you yeah. say 1916, he dodges the war. Oh, yeah. So um, what happened with the war um, is in 1915, he was drafted and the um, company he worked for, which was this quasi governmental insurance. Yeah, you mentioned Institute. that, right? Yeah. Right. They got him a deferment saying that he was an essential employee. Ah. Yeah. So, yeah, so but, the thing that kills you saves you. The thing yeah, that yeah. drives you mad is the yes. thing that prevents yeah. you from being, you know, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. machine gunned to death. Right. Right. In well, the trench. But, this is the thing. So Kafka did, Kafka was very later, uh, a few years after that was pensioned by the, this institute because of his tuberculosis. And he volunteered to join because World War I was still going on. And then he was denied um, because of the tuberculosis. Uh-huh. So, you know, through no, he, he had made some vague commitment to go. You know, so props to him. I mean, he technically, depending on how, you know, what your read on history is, I mean, he technically would have been one of the baddies, I guess. So I, I don't think that we have that opinion about World War One anymore. I don't think I don't know who is, was what. Honestly. Yeah, there were no good know. guys in World War One, yeah. really. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah. It was really hell on earth, yeah. and then it led to World War Two. Right, right. Yeah. No better. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. yeah. So um, so let me. So so they 1916 they meet up again and they're going to get married. Um, they they planned on it. Um his tuberculosis had started to get so bad that he basically was like, listen, there's no point in us getting married. Like I am a walking dead man. Um, why do this basically? Right. Um, which is rough. Um, so, uh, let me give you, um, but he also did struggle with the concept of marriage. So even though that very based statement I made before, I want to give you this one thing that he wrote right before he was supposed to get married to Felice. Um, uh, on July 21st, he draws up a list of himself of all the points for and against my marriage. And this goes on for several pages. I'm not going to read all of them. But number one, inability to bear living alone, not any inability to live, quite the contrary. It is even unlikely that I understand how to live together with someone, but to hear that onslaught of my own life, the onset of time and old age, the vague pressure of the itch to write, write my sleeplessness, the near approach of madness, I am, un, I am unable to bear all this alone. Okay, so that's one. Here's another one. I must be alone a great deal. All that I've accomplished is the result of being alone. Here's another one fear of being tied to anyone of overflowing into another personality then i shall never be alone anymore another one single i might perhaps one day really give up my job 
married, it would never be possible. Uh, yeah, that's kind of all. So there's, this is the, him trying to figure out the pros and cons of getting married, essentially. Um, which, you know, there are pros and cons. He seems so. to have a lot of self-awareness, which is nice. Better to be the guy who goes, I don't know if I can handle this, than right. the guy who burns through uh, yeah. two, two wives and leaves a trail of suffering and agony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's true. That's yeah. true. So they would, never, they would obviously never marry. She would ultimately marry a banker from Berlin. <laughs> um, they, uh, they exit. Those darn bankers. Yeah, I know, man. They steal, they steal all of them. Everything. Uh, they take everything. They take every, literally. everything. Literally. The money wasn't women. enough. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> the, the bankers, like he wrote, you know, there's a story about turning into a bug. Yeah. I don't understand these artists. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go Just on. got a think... shrimp cocktail the size of your fist. Just, <laughs> yeah, eat everything. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so her Felice Bauer would um she would uh outlive Kafka and get married to this banker and they she would actually um emigrate to the United States. Hmm. Um her great grandson, have you ever heard of the band the Moldy Peaches? No, I was gonna say was it Eddie, Eddie Bauer? No, <laughs> oh, God, <laughs> it could makes imagine. slacks. <laughs> No, no, no. The, the Moldy Peaches. Yeah, it's like some punk anti-folk mm. kind of band. They were quasi-famous in the 90s. Her great-grandson was in that. Anyway. Okay, okay, um, cool. Interesting. Yeah, so let me give you one more thing about just Kafka. You just attitude. wheel that out at parties. Yeah. My grandma dated Franz Kafka. Yeah. <laughs> Shut <laughs> up, a, nerd. It's an opener. This is from Max Broad's biography as well. This is just about more about Kafka in relationships, right? So too, all the many pictures of a bachelor's life, which play so great a part in his work and Kafka's work, are absolutely to be apprehended as the image in reverse of what is right and what is to be striven for. It is true that Kafka needed loneliness for his literary work. He needed a high degree of self-absorption, such as could sometimes be disturbed by a conversation, as his diary tells us, such as even communicating to a friend could endanger. But he examined himself minutely. In 1911, he makes this discovery about himself. In periods of transition, such as I have undergone the last few weeks, and of which the present moment is yet even more marked, I am often seized with a sad but calm astonishment at my lack of feeling. I am separated from everything by a space to whose limits I can't even force my way out. And then a little later, in March of, of 1912, he writes, who will confirm for me the truth or probability of the fact that solely as a result of my literary bent, I am without interest in anything else and heartless. So you know, I think it sounds like he was a victim of self-reflection to a point yeah. of torturing himself. Yeah. 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 That's kind of what I'm trying to get. Like he, he couldn't, he, yeah, he, he, he did. He, he was constantly in his own head, as we would say now. He thought rapaciously. I mean, the other thing is he was overwhelmed by literary ideas. I mean, he, it was a constant buzz, not just anxiety, but like, you know, oh, what if I turned into a bug? What if I went on trial? You know, like just constant idea of, of short story, of story ideas and fragments. You know, he was only writing for like 15 years, half, five of it, he was deathly ill. And his output is quite a lot he was writing a lot um i think he was afraid of losing that his job was such an impingement on it then he was like well then if you've got a wife then that's even more and how will i ever do this thing and i'm already crushed by not you know it's just a recipe 
for anxiety and he never he could never figure it out he could never get himself into a living situation that would i did a quick search uh and for kafka tuberculosis and google prompts a question and the question is did franz kafka kill himself Mm. because he seems like the kind of writer that you would assume that's how he went out right Right. Right. Uh, Right. but no but no yeah he didn't No. no no So let me talk about this other woman. There's one more woman. Well, there's two more, but this one is significant because um, he was crazy about her. Uh, Melina Jasenska. I assume I'm pronouncing that correctly. Um, she was younger. So she was like 13 years younger than, than Kafka, but she was born in Prague. She was not a Jew, and this is significant later on. Um, she, in 1918, she married a Jewish intellectual um, who she'd met in the literary circles of Prague. And this marriage basically like severed her from her family. That yeah, family wouldn't right. want to speak to her anymore. Of course. Yeah. Um, but the relationship wasn't great. She had this weird thing where she, she kind of loved them, but also kind of hated them. And it was complicated. Hmm. Um, in 19, so he wasn't able to make much money because this is World War One's going on. The economy is a mess. Um, so, you know, as you do, whenever, I know whenever you're hard up for cash, whenever I'm hard up for cash, what I start doing is I start translating obscure short stories. And so Absolutely. very high paying, <laughs> lucrative. Right. So I love, I love reading, reading about uh, people in like the 1940s. I did a photo series for right. Life Magazine. Right. I got paid $65,000 yeah. in uh, your money in 2021. Right. I went to right. live in Peru for three right. years on the proceeds from that. Right. Right. That's where I wrote my first novel, which right. was immediately purchased. Right. Right. Uh, so I, I was then able to uh, purchase my villa in France uh, and pay my alimony. I'm I'm currently doing another photo series. Right, 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 right. (laughs) Wait, you did three jobs and lived off it for five years, you're telling me. They they seriously are like that. There's a story I read in one of the Paris Review interviews that um, it was, you know, they did like the art of fiction, the art of, you know, drama, whatever. One of them was like the art of editing or something. And I don't remember the details, but this is how I remember it. I, this is, there's more steps in this, but it was the guy who was like the editor of the New Yorker who was like, I literally, I, dro- I drove a hay truck and I didn't know what I was going to do. And then I went to New York and I became the editor in chief of the New Yorker. It's like, wait, wait. so you didn't even like. Right, right. Back when people could do things, you could do things and you would, people talk about this on Twitter about how if yeah. you start reading mid-century American careers, yeah. it will drive you totally oh, insane. It doesn't make any they sense. They just suddenly, they're a professor at Princeton. Right. There's no context. They don't win, a, win an award. They maybe, they maybe published a few short stories and now they're teaching yeah. at Cornell. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That doesn't make any sense. So uh, anyway, so 1919, <laughs> she's uh, she's taken on the, the 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 for a little bit of work to support their family. They don't have any kids yet or whatever, but she's she's takes translating stories. She reads Kafka's story, The Stoker, which was actually the first chapter in America, which was published as a standalone story, um, and she wanted to translate it from German into Czech. So they. You know, he, she writes this letter to him. He writes a letter back, and then this like cor, um, cor, romance by correspondence begins. Um, um, they don't actually meet each other for quite a while, um, and because this is we're going kind of long, I'm going to skip some of the stuff that I was going to talk about. But this becomes a relationship of again, sort of like Felice. There's like coming and going, and they're living together, and then they're not, and then 
she w- w- wants to come stay with him for a while, but she doesn't want to get married and leave her husband. And Kafka's like, marriage is sacred. I'm not going to be like the surrogate dude that you come and, you know, you just throw your, throw your booty at every once in a while. Like, it's very kind of complicated. Um, but she was kind of, she was awesome. So she was, uh, she wrote for the Czech Tribune. She wrote like a month, a weekly column that like everybody in the city read. Like she was like like a girl boss. She was, she was a girl boss of 1919. All right. And yeah, yeah. And, um, there's, uh, one thing though, she wrote this letter to Max Broad because after they sort of broke up, she freaked out a little bit. And, you know, she would talk to Max Broad because Kafka told her not to talk to him anymore. Um, also, Kafka is very sick at this time, too. So um, and we're going to get to that in a second. But I want to read this thing that she wrote um, about him. Hold on a second. Um, 20, OK, so this is a letter from Milena about Kafka. And I think this is our final. This gives us our biggest like picture into him. Um, Melina talking about Kafka. For him, life is something entirely different from what it is to everyone else. Above all, for him, money, the stock market, foreign exchange, a typewriter, are utterly mystical things. And they are that, in fact, only not for the rest of us. To him, they are the strangest enigmas toward which he has an attitude altogether different from ours. Is his work as an official, say, anything like an ordinary job? For him, the entire office, including his own part in it, is something as mysterious and remarkable as a locomotive is to a small child. Okay, so something else she says. Um, oh, where did that go? She talks about going to, have you ever gone to a post office with him? Melina says to, to Max Broad. After he has um, file, filed away at a telegram and then shaking his head, picked out the window he likes best. And after he has tramped from one window to the next without the least understanding why and wherefore until he finally stumbles on the right one. And after he has paid and received his change, he counts up what he has received, finds that he has been given a crown too much and recur- returns the crown to the girl at the window. Then he walks slowly away, counts his change again. And on the last step down to the street, he sees that the returned crown did belong to him after all. Now you stand helplessly beside him. He shifts his weight from one foot to the other and ponders what he ought to do. To go back is hard. There is a crowd at the window upstairs. Then let it be, I say. He looks at me in utter horror. Um, There's another. He kind of is the arch subject of modernity, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Too sensitive. Mm -hmm. Just get on with it. Get your elbows out. Get on with it. Yeah, but he, he can't, can't handle it. He can't do it. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. part of the reason he can't do it is also why he wrote these crazy books, right? Right. Yeah, they, they, two go hand in hand. One, uh, one other, two other bits from this. Um, let's see. His constraint with regard to money is almost the same as his constraint toward women. And this is Milena talking again. Likewise, his fear of his job. I once telegraphed, telephoned, wrote, implored him in God's name to come to me for a day. At the time, it was very necessary for me. I cursed him and railed against him. He did not sleep for nights on end, tormented himself, wrote letters full of self-abasement, but he did not come. Why? He had been unable to ask for some days off of work. One more from this. Ah, no. This whole world is and remains mysterious to him, a mystical enigma, something that he cannot afford and that with a pure, touching naivete he esteems because it is efficient. When I told him about my husband, who was unfaithful to me a hundred times a year, Milena never divorced her husband. Um, 
who holds me and many other women in a kind of spell, Kafka's face lit up with the same reverence it had held that time he spoke of his director, who types so fast and is therefore such an excellent person, and as it did the time he spoke, to, spoke of his fiancée as good at business. All such things are alien to him. A person who types fast and a man who has four mistresses are just as incomprehensible to him as the crown piece at the post office and the beggar's crown piece. Incomprehensible because these, these things are alive. But Frank, she called Kafka Frank. Frank cannot live. Frank does not have the capacity for living. Frank will never get well. Frank will die soon. So she had his number more than anybody. She loved him too. You know, this isn't like her throwing him out this is her talking about him she loved him and this is what she thought of him he was incapable of living in the in the world you know this the yeah so um let's talk about we'll talk about the tuberculosis we'll talk about the end so in 1917 he's diagnosed with tuberculosis 1918 he gets a pension they they just like the the institute he works for is like you can't work for us anymore you're coughing blood you know like you can't do it so so he's so he's um 35 years old or right around there um so he's got a few years where he doesn't basically doesn't have to work he spends a lot of that in sanatoriums gradually gets worse you know, has some good days, some bad days. I don't know how much you know about tuberculosis. Tuberculosis is what sometimes used to be called consumption. Um, it's basically a bacterial infection of the lungs. It's fairly treatable now, though still a lot of people die of it. <clears throat> um, if it becomes active, inf- an active infection, at this time at least, there was basically a 50% fatality rate. And you could live with it for a long time. Kafka lived with it for, you know, seven years. Um, and just gradually more painful, gradually coughing more, gradually, you know, it just never really got any better. Um, what an awful way to die. No, it's not good. Yeah. It's, it's not good. Um, so during this, he met this woman named, um, he was in uh, uh, Moritz, which is, uh, I don't remember what country that's Switzerland, in. Switzerland, I think, right? It might be Switzerland, yeah. So he's, um, he's there. Um, taken a vacation with his sister um, and his sister. He was close with his sisters. There were times where he lived with his, he, this is another thing about Kafka. He spent up until the sanatorium years, he spent most of his adulthood living with his parents still. Um, yeah. He was a neat, except yeah. he had, he was employed. And, but yeah. then eventually his final days, he was uh, yeah. on a pension in his thirties. Fantastic. Yeah. Right. This is, this is when they would go and take the air, right? You'd go yeah. to Switzerland and the theory is that the air could somehow. Yeah. It's just, heal it, you. It, yeah. I don't even know if they thought it would heal you. They just thought it would be more comfortable. I think. Sure. It was it's good like for you. fresh yeah. air and you know, so, right. so he meets this girl, um, Dora Daimont there, who is a Orthodox Jewish girl. Um, and he meets her, she's, you know, and they, they develop a sort of correspondence. Kafka again is sick. Um, but shortly after meeting her in 1923, he, and again, he dies in 24. So, you know, there's not a lot of time. He, he, um, he decides that he's going to go to live in Berlin with Dora. He, he's going to go there. He's going to finally be independent. Um, he's not going to live with his parents anymore. He's got this pension. He's going to just sort it out. And he was very, very happy actually here. Max Broad talks about how he finally not, there was something profound for Kafka about having his own place, living with a woman that he cared about and who cared about him 
And even though he was deathly ill, this was like, this is it. This is what life's supposed to be like, right? Just um, want to grill, man. Yeah, exactly. Just want to raise my kids and grill. <laughs> just want to write weird stories and yeah. raise kids and live in a city, you know, and just want to do my thing. Um, but then he gets, starts to get sicker. He starts to get a lot sicker. And uh, eventually he has to go back to Prague because he needs more people around taking care of him. He has his great Dora stays with him, but she's practically a kid. Um, I'm not sure even how old she is, but she's a lot younger than he is. Um, her family had really hard time with this because she was Orthodox. They were Orthodox. Kafka was not Orthodox and they're living together without being married. Like it was not, it was not Whoa, good. Doggy. Yeah. And, yeah. and Kafka's family didn't like her either for whatever reason. So Here, here's the thing that's worth noting. We, we mm -hmm. often talk about, Oh God, society is so awful. Uh, it doesn't understand artists. It doesn't treat yeah. artists. Well, artists don't treat society very well no, either. very often. No, and don't. so the disdain is often mutual. Yeah. No, they're always looking for ways to get out of stuff. And you know, I'm guilty. I'm guilty of that too. Oh, yeah. So yeah, I get it. Yeah. I get it. So, um, so we're going to talk about this last phase of Kafka's life and it's, it's, it's kind of rough. There's, um, there's a story that he writes, towards the end called the hunger artist i don't know if you've ever read that but it uh it's about in the hunger artist it's there's this idea of if fasting is like a carnival attraction so it's like if you carnival comes to town one of the things you'll see is you'll go see the hunger artist and what the hunger artist does is he just sits in the space and he doesn't eat anything right and the whole you know the joke is that like oh he's really eating stuff so they got to watch him all the time or whatever this short story is about the greatest of the hunger artists and um he outlives the tradition like nobody really cares about this as a feat anymore but he still likes doing it and they would never let him go past 40 days without eating and he does finally and it's this great spiritual thing and then at the end there's like this weird irony that like he feels like he actually cheated because not because he ate during the period, but because the reason he could do it was he didn't really like eating. And there's like this, it's not this like profound reversal, but there is this like Kafka-esque anxiety about like, it's almost His like, own motive wasn't pure. It right. wasn't so it really a challenge for him. It didn't count somehow. Yeah. Yeah, uh, right. So right. He's, there's something about that going on. And hmm. anyway, so... Um, and, and, and Kafka is, is sort of in the process of, of dying when he writes this story, The Hunger Artist, amongst some others. Um, uh, let me see here. Um, so, yeah, I've got, got a little thing that I want to read. Okay, so now, um, now that Kafka, now that Franz was living with his father and mother again, he felt, in spite of all tender care that surrounded him, as the shipwreck of all of his plans for being defeated, uh, for being independent as a defeat. So, you know, he feels like he's basically, he's failed now. He, was, he had an independent life for a few years. He's like 39, and that seems like that's all it's going to be. Um, he has his doctor who's taking pretty good care of him or trying to take pretty good care of him. But eventually his throat pain is so severe that they tell him not to talk, and he's just communicating on slips of paper. Max Broad's coming to visit him. Dora's there with him. His parents come in occasionally. He's writing these slips of paper to them. Um, on the, um, like the second to last day, Dora claims that an owl flew to his window in the middle of the night. Right? Oh, just like Hunter Biden. 
It's like Hunter Biden. Hunter Biden had an owl that told him to go and sleep with his dead brother's uh, wife. I saw, I saw that tweet and I was like, yeah, I mean, that could have happened. The owls are not what they seem. They right? aren't, man. You, mm. never, you never know what you're getting into with an owl. So, um, <laughs> so let me, oh, I got to find, I got to find this. Yeah, so it's visited by an owl. Um, anyway, he, oh, I have literally, That's right. we, yeah, well, well, you well you go to find it. I just want to remind people that you can find this show. And, and Brad, by the way, you're going to break two hours here. So congratulations! It's done. your first two hour episode. <laughs> uh, I, I nearly broke three hours with with Kubrick, but not quite. Uh, you can find the show at artofdarkpod.com. You can find it on Twitter at artofdarkpod, and then uh, we are also on Patreon. If you enjoy what you're hearing. Please support independent uh, media. Go to uh, patreon.com slash artofdarkpod. And uh, we also have the shirt, which you can get through the website for a limited time. I think it's uh, available until May 10th of 2021. We're going to continue to do uh, every so often these little merch drops that are going to be fun. They're going to be uh, quirky, unusual shirts uh, that uh, speak to one of the artists uh, that, that we do on this show. I'm getting really excited for the Virginia Wolf episode. I should say, too, for the Patreon. Uh, we do bonus episodes where we kind of deconstruct and just uh, chat a little more off the record about uh, the subject that we're dealing with. So in this case, Kafka, but also how the research was done uh, and then maybe a little more uh, cavalier approach to kind of how we feel about it and, uh, and all the rest of it. So I'm looking forward to doing that. We call those episodes After Dark. So that's coming. Again, if you like the, like the show, support us on Patreon. Uh, Brad, did you find the, uh, the excerpt here you want to read? Yeah, from? I did. All I right. did. I just wanted to find this thing Max Broad's talking about. This is literally Kafka's final moments. Okay. So he had... Uh, at four o'clock in the morning, he'd started breathing, breathing difficultly. And this woman is the last real companion of his life. We've got the doctor, brings him in. Um, and then Ka Franz starts arguing for morphine. There had been some fighting earlier on about whether he was going to get morphine or not. Um, so then began, then began the fight for morphine. Franz said to Klopstock, who is the doctor, you have always been promising it me, to me for four years. You were torturing me. You have always been torturing me. I am not talking to you anymore. I shall die like that. And they gave him two injections of morphine. This is the only time he ever demanded anything in his whole friggin' life. Um, wow. After the second, he, he, second shot, he said, don't cheat me. You are giving me an antidote. Then the words I mentioned before. Then Kafka says, kill me or else you are a murderer, which is like an intense, <laughs> which is kind of an intense thing to say. Um, wow. Then they gave him more morphine. He was happy about that. That's good, he said, but more, more. It isn't helping me. Then he went slowly to sleep. His last words were about his sister, Ellie. Dr. Klopstock was holding his head and Kafka thought it was Ellie. And he was always terribly afraid he might infect someone. So he said, um, he said, go away, Ellie. Not so near, not so near. And as Dr. Klopstock moved away a little, he was sad. Kafka was satisfied and said, yes, like that. It's all right like that. And that was it. He died. And there are some people who say that he actually died of starvation because he wasn't able to eat anything. His throat hurt so badly um, that he Jeez. had stopped eating days and days earlier. And he was yes. already in a weakened state. So there's, there's an, you know, a way of looking at it where he basically starved to death. Um, you know, in a sick bed. Um, I do, you know, and that's, that's kind of it. And Max Broad would later go on to, 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 to popularize him and make him famous. Um, um, you know, yeah, you got to get yourself a friend like that. If you're oh, a writer man. and you're underappreciated, he worked, he worked, you he worked hard for him. 
Yeah. He retired for him. Kafka, the legend goes that Kafka told Max Broad to burn all of his papers and Max Broad didn't. And then, you know, and then there's this like, oh, did Max Broad betray him? But think about this. You've got all this stuff you've written. You give it to the one person who tells you you're great. That person, <laughs> and say, burn these. Yeah, yeah. And then your friend tells you, I'm not going to do that. Okay. Did you really betray? That's not right. betrayal. No, I don't That's, think so. You, you, Kafka wanted to have it both ways, I think. That sounds very Kafka-esque, doesn't it? It, does, it sounds right? like a final gesture. Yeah. Yeah. yeah this catch-22 yeah. in, in perpetuity. Yeah. So let me give you I just two more minutes here because we've got a couple of things that I want to point out about the other people, the other characters in Kafka's life. Max, Max Broad manages, because this is 1924, 15 years later, 16 years later, the Germans are going to try to are going to occupy um, Prague. Um, Max Broad escapes to Israel a few years before that. He sort of saw the writing on the wall. Kafka's sisters are not so lucky. All three of them, I'm um, sorry, all one of them would die in the camps, and the two others would die in the ghettos after they were they were forced into by the Nazis. Um, and many, many, many of Kafka's surviving friends would be would be killed in the camps. Um, Melina, who was not a Jew, would also die in the camps because she stayed behind to get as many Jews out of, out of Prague as she possibly could. And she was captured by the Gestapo as a political prisoner. Um, and then, you know, she would die of kidney failure in the camps a, a few years later. So all of this stuff was like just burning out on the time horizon. Kafka never, never had to deal with it himself, but, um, you know, little did he know how many people that he cared about would, would have to deal with it. Um, so, yeah, kind of heavy. Yeah, a little heavy. A little heavy. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna go put on uh, Radiohead and um, <laughs> it's appropriate music. And I didn't go, get to uh, sit in the dark. I, I didn't get to talk about Blue Octavo notebooks, but that's okay. I had some other things, but man, I, I got deep into this. This one I got obsessed with. So. Well, and I appreciate it. It is so much fun to be on the receiving end of one of these salvos. Uh, the <laughs> format of this show is that we do we do these currently twice a month. I think you can see we do a little bit of uh, of research and deep deep digging, uh, and then we more or less uh, walk the other party through. So Brad does one, I do the other, uh, and I'm excited to do Virginia Woolf next, uh, of, yeah, of, of whom I am terrified. I am very afraid of Virginia <laughs> Woolf. He should be. Uh, another writer, uh, and I believe this one actually did kill herself. I think yeah. she did manage to famously do it, yes. uh, but not... Uh, not until she did have a room wait, of her own is, for a little is, while. So wait, wait, is she at her first actual suicide? Ooh, interesting. Let's go back. Did we? Yeah, I think she. I think she might be our first suicide. Woo! Ring the All bell. Right. All right. <laughs> All right. We've already. We've already done. <laughs> we've done a murderer. Right. I think Burroughs was a murderer. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We we just had two Jewish fellows in a row. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting. Uh, yeah. Kubrick and what yeah. else do we have here? Um, not that those two things are related. No, I'm just thinking all. about categories of people. Yeah, uh, because everybody loves to do that these days. Some, some we, drug, some drug addicts. Yep, some drug addicts. Um, some, some someone um, who's either enlightened or a grifter. It's not mm, clear which. Mm -hmm, right, Virgif, the, the <laughs> certainly uh, polyamorous. Uh, yeah, seven, yeah. seven children at a minimum by seven different women. Yeah, uh, yeah. we had the the pederast. Uh, the sort of yeah. borderline, uh, the Oscar Wilde, the sort of okay, mm -hmm. yeah, this is good. We're living, we're living on the edge, but I'm amazed that it's going to take us that. Yeah, 
we're going to get the full spectrum of humanity before we're done here. That's yeah. That's, that's what well, Anna, and Anna Kavan didn't kill herself, did she? No, she was no. a heroin overdose. It was, oh, so we had an overdose. Yeah. Yeah. yeah okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. Good. Yeah. Well, that's, that's, that's great. You know, making art is wonderful. Uh, clearly the, the most stable people in the world are drawn to, drawn <laughs> to the practice and uh, we have to hold uh, all artists to the very highest standard uh, that's right. to the, the, the same level that we would hold a vicar or a politician. Right. Uh, right. And it's right. very important that nobody ever makes a mistake ever in their life. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you don't or, wanna, I mean, no, no, we can't, we can't support. We must own. have decor. We must have decorum. In the yes. Office. Everything must be bourgeois and decorous yeah. and yeah. Uh, nobody can have fun ever again. <laughs> uh, I think Kafka would fit right in, in our, in our little uh, uh, Calvinist hell. That we yeah. that we've uh, we've developed here in the uh, current non-culture. Wow, he like well, rules. He likes he he needs some rules to mm-hmm. get by, even well, if he it, doesn't like them. That's his that's his trap. Yeah, interesting. Well, you know, in Hanukkah, Michael Hanukkah, the great uh, director, uh, does have a film version of the castle, which yes. n- no spoilers does end kind of mid sentence <laughs> like the like the novel. I don't think I'm going to spoil it for you. Yeah. Uh, that's worth watching. Oh, I did mention, I wanted to go into this, but Orson Welles made the tri- uh, a version of The Trial and Orson Welles believed it to be his best film. So ah. definitely worth watching. Okay. Um, Anthony Perkins, sure. from Psycho, right? He yep. plays the main character. It's great. It's a great, great. It's a great film. Okay, I may watch that. Well, yeah. so we've got two orders of business. We're going we're gonna to continue on for another 30 minutes or so, uh, which is available to the Patreon listeners. And we always end with a question, though. So uh, I guess, Brad, what, what do you think Kafka would be doing if he was alive today in, in 2021? He would still be working a terrible office job and kvetching about it constantly. He would have been engaged seven or eight different times. Never would have quite worked out. Right. Maybe not. Maybe it would have eventually worked out. Um, and he would be right. I, you know, he would be writing still. He was bursting with, uh, he was bursting with literary ideas. Um, maybe he is somebody that you'd like to drop right into the zeitgeist now. And oh yeah, see what would this come look like? His, yeah, his filter. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it it is interesting. He had he had, and we didn't get into it. He had really strong religious tendencies too. So I do wonder if at some point he would have like gone east in search of a guru. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Mm-hmm. He, he could have. He's a guy and a guy who could have done something like that. So well, Brad, this has been a real trip. I can't wait to talk a little more about it. Uh, yeah. For people listening, thank you for listening. This is Kevin Kautzman with Brad Kelly, uh, and you can find us at artofdarkpod.com. Up next is Virginia Wolf. Brad, do you have an idea who you're going to do next? Um, yeah, I think I'm going to talk about Rod Serling. Rod I Serling. Like yeah. All right. Awesome. Thanks, Brad. That was a lot of fun. And, and the, the the show title is definitely Franz Kafka Goes to Hot Topic. <laughs> I like it. <laughs> All right. All right. Take care.